1994年11月20日女子プロレスの一番熱く長い一日史上最大の決戦ビッグエッグレスリングユニバースドーム頂上対戦ただいまより開催いたします And welcome to episode number five of Big Egg Podcasting Universe. I am George Thompson, and I am joined as always by Sarah Parkin and David Forrest. So, uh, how are everyone this fine, or how is everyone even this fine Sunday night? Um, I'm <laughs> fucking rushing at once. Happy to be here, and definitely glad that we found out about this. That, that we found out about uh, the fate of this episode um, in good time. Yes, this is uh, take number two of this uh, episode, which we are recording the weekend before release, which uh, may explain why our uh, our topical references are more timely and not months out of date as they usually are. So essentially, the audio got corrupted for this episode, so we had to do a do over. But um, that... Wait, hang on, are you saying that we're not allowed to do any Tiger King references now because they're not? <laughs> Topical, anyway. so as, as Batista might have said, tying references are not only encouraged, they're allowed. <laughs> so, uh... I, I, I do like the fact that as well, that now that we are recording this now, I don't ha- I can only have to take out 25 minutes of heavily libelous and cancelable material, <laughs> as opposed to the, the 45 minutes I've been taking out every time we've done one of these podcasts before. Um, so let's talk about NXT UK, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, look, if we uh, look, we, we will be the only people talking about NXT UK, so. Uh... <laughs> They're so shit. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, um, the the this the uh, theme of this episode. So, this is the second of two episodes we've done back to back, featuring some of the interpromotional matches that uh, happened on the undercard of uh, Big Egg. And by the undercard, I mean the matches we're covering today were the 10th and 11th on the show. <laughs> so that uh, <laughs> gives you yet yet another indication of what a ridiculously and stupidly long show uh, this was. This may be the only show ever that's got more sh- matches than uh, Starcade 1999, <laughs> uh, which I, 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 I can tell you, as I used to watch it all the time when I was a kid, because it was one of the only VHSs I owned, that has a lot of matches on it. <laughs> I think it's 16, and it's like a three-hour show. Okay, now. 
So we're officially at the bit now where most people would be saying, God, WrestleMania is far too long these days. We really can't keep doing this. And yet, no, we are solid mid-show at this point. I would argue this is an easier watch than WrestleMania in recent years. The, the reason is, is because the wrestling is good. So that, that would be uh, that would be not all of it, as we'll probably get to in later episodes, but uh, but the majority of it. I'd say there's a good seven, eight hours of good wrestling on this show. Loses points for not having any good Limp Biscuit. I will say that. I, I mean, yeah. the, the the idea of good Limp Biscuit. Actually, good Limp Biscuit are quite good. Come uh, on, WrestleMania seventeen. That the the video with my way that kind of sets up the Stone Cold versus the Rock feud. That is an all-timer. Yeah, the, 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 I, I, I agree with you, but the uh, like a major part of the video package, and everyone forgets this, is like a big part of that storyline was Deborah becoming the Rock's manager, an angle they just absolutely shit-canned before the show, but it's still in the video package. And, and then they and they literally retcon it in the video package where Stone Cold's like, forget about Deborah, she's a non-factor. <laughs> it's like <they're> fucking... <laughs> Come out and say it, for God's sake. Um, I would just like to take this opportunity to say, John Otto, take it to the Tokyo Dome City Bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bloody hell. I mean, uh, I'm not sure what's going on, but uh, anyway, this episode is um, going to be, uh, yeah, some of the interpromotional matches. Uh, So the difference between this and the previous episode, episode four, is... Uh, whereas the matches we covered in episode four are kind of uh, not exhibition matches, but they're they're like sort of undercard stuff, as in like you know the first hour of the show, um, and so they 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 go fairly hard, but not as hard as some of the other stuff on the card. Whereas the matches we're coming to today, shall we say, have quite a lot of needle to them. Uh, and they both happen to be interpromotional matches between AJW and a promotion called uh, Ladies Legendary Professional Wrestling, or LLPW. So before we get into the matches, uh, Sarah is going to give us a little bit of the background about this promotion, and in particular, it's uh, it's uh, president and top star Shinobu Kandori. Yeah, so this is... I love this story, guys. Buckle up. This is This goes all sorts of places. So... In, we're not really just talking about LLPW, because to talk about LLPW, you also have to go back and talk about um, JWP. Um, so these are two promotions that are you know, completely intertwined. And this goes back to, so last week we talked about Gaia and we talked about that being um, Chigusa Nagayo's kind of retirement plan, as in, let's not bother retiring. <laughs> so she, um, so Chigusa Nagaya, um, had her time on the top as part of a successful, uh, as part of a incredibly successful tag team, and also as a single star, had to retire, did not like the idea of retiring very much, went off on her own and set up her own promotion that was going to give her more opportunities. In this respect, she was not innovative, although she was innovative in, in so many other ways. Um, because in the same way that, um, Chigasa followed Jackie Sato in The Crush Girls being the successes of the beauty pair. So she was actually following a pattern that had been laid by Jackie Sato because after the beauty pair retired in the 70s, Jackie Sato was forced... Well, forced is probably not the right word, but she would have almost certainly kept wrestling had she wanted to. She ended up being a trainer in the AJW dojo. So we were talking before about how incredible a trainer Jaguar Ikota was and what and how much we have to be thankful for with her, um, Jackie Sato was the one who trained Jaguar Ikota. So that that kind of sets in that there's a lineage of what's happening in the ring. There's also a lineage of trainers kind of running backstage in the dojo um, and people sort of transition between the two. So 
Jackie is a trainer in the dojo. She trains Devil Masami and Jaguar Yukata, but essentially, she's sick of this shit and she didn't want to retire, so she went off and formed her own promotion. So, in 1986, and this is, by that point, Jaguar Yukata has also retired, so if you bear in mind that this may at least partially be, well, Jag's going to look after the dojo so I can go off and do something else now, who cares? Um, that might have been part of her thinking, but she goes out and she forms the um, Japan Women's Pro Wrestling Organization, so JWP. Um, the idea behind this is that it, it's built around a few sort of quite core stars. So there's her, obviously, and I suppose it makes sense if you're if you have that kind of mainstream name appeal, but also it's your promotion, you can do that. Um, and also Nancy Kumi and crucially uh, a young up and comer called Shinobu Kandori. I don't really know where to start talking about Shinobu Kandori because she is a complicated woman mm. who, within the last couple of years, has been seen setting herself up for an MMA fight against Gabby Garcia, which she then had to drop out of, and has had actual jobs in the Japanese government. Well, she is a, she is a, an elected MP for the uh, Liberal Democratic Party, the only Lib Dems that are shitter than the ones in the UK. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I do... I was going to say... Imagine the idea of like someone in the Conservative government in a moment like fighting Crow Cop and Rising, and I'm like, actually, no, I'd love that. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I can give you a up. laundry list of people in the Conservative government. I would fucking love to fight. It doesn't have to be Crow Cop. It could be any terrifying Pride FC holdover from the nineties. <laughs> so, um, JWP's first card to give you an idea of how they're building this promotion is it's Jackie Sato, Nancy Kumi, and Shinobu Kandori versus. Harley Saito, Dynamite Kansai, and Mayumi Ozaki. Now, these are names that we will come across uh, at various points. Um, to even people who are not necessarily on this show, um, you will come across because they were all people who were quite significant people in Joshi, certainly at the time. Um, by the end of that year, um, QT Suzuki and Eagle Sawai have had to retire out of AJW, so the first thing they do is go to JWP. Um, and why does it end up being so appealing for people who are being, you know, retired out of the business, arguably, evidently before they're ready? Um, perhaps unexpectedly, considering who Jackie Sato is and what the beauty pair represented, it's a bit less showbiz than AJW. But what it's aiming for is a kind of diversity of different styles, really. So it's quite cosmopolitan in the sense that they're bringing together people who are slightly more legit fighters um, with the people who are kind of more sports entertaining, which is why someone like Cutie Suzuki can find a home there. It has no mandatory retirement age and indeed none of the strict rules, such as, you know, the no drinking, no smoking, no boys that people were used to in AJW. So, you know, perhaps for the people who had aged out and were like, like well, actually, I could keep wrestling and I could have a life at the same time you know this, this actually works out quite I, I, I do want I do want to do mad blow in the locker room backstage <laughs> <laughs> all I say is if you've got a choice between a gaff with no cans and a gaff with cans you're taking the gaff with cans <laughs> Kitty Suzuki confirmed lover of the cans what's what I'm getting from this <laughs> the other thing is because it has because it's a bit less restrictive in terms of what it wants it also becomes quite attractive for not only the people retiring out of AJW but also the people who don't get into AJW in the first place thus making it in many respects the Durham University of Jersey <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we could say that both 
we can say that both being uh, graduates of Durham University and also rejects from uh, uh, Oxford and Cambridge, which is at a, at a, at a, at a loose estimate ninety eight percent of the of the uh, student body of Durham University. Just because you two weren't good enough to go to the top three universities in the country, namely Glasgow, Strathclyde, and Glasgow Caledonian. Ah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I really hope like they didn't have like as big a chip on their shoulder as some of the cunts used to get at Durham who would define themselves by what Cambridge or Oxford College they would have got into, the one they applied for and got rejected from being too oh, big. Oh, God. Like, that, that, that a was a thing. Absolute small-time behaviour. Yeah. Well, one way or another, I had a perfectly successful time at the JWP of universities. And I was not with it. That, that is, I think... Bigger praise than Durham University merits, but but that's by the by. How great would that have been if Cutie Suzuki had actually given us a degree certificate? That 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 would have been good. We had some fucking opera singer instead. Yeah, sorry. So they they built working agreements with um, UWA in Mexico, um, which the idea of that being that the, the lucha style was kind of growing in popularity, but also you know. Using foreign talent brings in more people, brings in more fresh matchups, brings in a little bit of kind of cultural cachet as well. And it just fits with this idea of kind of diversity and all the different things that wrestling can be that maybe AJW isn't doing to quite the same extent at the time as well. Um, she's more, they're, they're kind of more open to all of those different styles. AJW starts to pick up on that a bit later on. So we'll talk maybe a little bit later in this series about AJW starting to open up and, and bring people in. They they send talent on excursions to places like Mexico, but they don't really kind of have the the, the same level of cooperation. Yeah, besides like La Galactica in 1983, there wasn't really that level of uh, of sort of cross-promotional stuff with, uh, with the lucha scene at the time, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, but inevitably... A lot of wrestling promotions end up coming up against this same old argument about what pro wrestling is, don't they? Either it's a glorified form of entertainment with all of the bells and whistles, or it's something that's a bit more legitimate, shooty, fighty, and sometimes it, sometimes it's just really hard to reconcile those two things within the same, within the same company. And inevitably, when you have Jackie Sato, who is leading this kind of group who are far more entertainment-based, you know, leaning back into her her heritage and what she's great at. And then you're also dealing with the ego of one Shinobu Kandori at the same time. Um, these things are, are, are never entirely going to gel. So um, Shinobu Kandori, to give you a bit of background on her, she had won a bronze medal in judo at the 1984 Olympics and then decided to go into pro wrestling, thus making her the Ronda Rousey of Joshi and make of that what you will. Um, she actually, she starts going into pro wrestling and she actually trains for a while under Fujiwara and she goes to the New Japan dojo for a little while, um, which I thought was really interesting. But she actually debuted as a professional wrestler in JWP. So Jackie Sato brought her in and was like, hey, this is a great talent. Let's do some more with her. Um, but Kandori then ends up basically being the leader of this kind of more shooty faction in in the sort of in the promotion along with uh, Rumi Kazama who had actually um, done some kickboxing that was kind of her background as well so you've got these kind of quote-unquote legit 
fighters saying, well, surely we should be leaning into this. And it seems like things get quite heated. Now, accounts differ and some are in Japanese and shoddily Google translated from the research that I've done on this. Um, some people say that um, Jackie Sato's ego was becoming a bit of an issue. But I and also knowing what we know about kind of Shinobu Kandori and kind of how she developed as a talent and what she's gone on to do since. I can easily see how they would have had the kind of personalities where they were, but it was just two big egos and it was impossible. It was impossible to make them get along. But either way, this gets really difficult. And this all happens in a very short order as well. So we are still in 1986, right from the beginning of this, right at the beginning of this company. Summer 1986, Jackie Sato gives, um, gives Shinobu a legit injury in a match. Um, it, the impression is that Jackie Sato actually shoots on her straight away. Um, if that wasn't a shoot, the next one definitely was. Because on July... <laughs> the, well, in, in 1987, they do it again. And Jackie Sato straight up shoots on Kandori and goes straight after her injured eye, which hasn't completely healed up yet. So she straight goes... She just goes for her. But sort of 12 days later... 12, yes, I'm looking at the sums, yes, so 12. On July the 18th, 1987, Shinobu Kandori shoots on Jackie Sato in revenge and beats her up so badly that Jackie Sato retires again. Like, she she doesn't come back from that. No, give it the queen, you best not miss. (laughs) I think it's either. I mean, I'm not sure whether it's just that the injuries were so severe that she couldn't wrestle again or very much that it just kind of, that was the final straw and she was just like, I'm done with, I'm done with this. Um, But then begins quite a sorry comedy of errors in kind of the late 80s for a little while because Kandori leaves JWP, starts working as a freelancer, tries to get into AJW. AJW doesn't want her. She gets forced in, back into JWP to work out the rest of her contract. I, I, for one, uh, I, I, for one, don't believe that someone would be under the false impression they could leave a Joshi promotion and then it turns out that their contract uh, didn't say they could do so and there was all sorts of, um, of weird uh, shenanigans around that. Certainly nothing like that has happened this year. Absolutely had anything like that it's not like Joshi's remotely dodgy no 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 no. it's really interesting actually about you saying this because like you tend to hear far more about Kandori shooting on Sato than you do the other way uh, the other way around that like uh, you know according to the accounts you've read Sato was the instigator and uh, I think it's quite interesting that uh, even though Kandori had this really legit background that she was shot on. But, like, you can't be caught unawares. I mean, famously, in 1954, Ricky Dozan shot on Masahiko Kimura, who was one of the greatest jiu-jitsu fighters in the world. But, unlike Ricky Dozan was a sumo, he can handle himself. But you can shoot on someone with, uh, you know, who is a more skilled fighter than you if they're not expecting it. So, like, that's uh, it's kind of uh, it's, it's kind of very interesting how it's kind of and seemed was seemingly tip for tabs. Yeah, I mean, also bear in mind that um, given some of the things that we're about to talk about um, now, I think it would almost be in Shinobu Kandori's interest to develop her legend based on her having shot on Jackie Sato as well. And from from what I've read, it does seem like Sato started it, which begs the question of. If you're Jackie Sato, why do you think you can shoot on Shinobu Kandori? This may sort of provide evidence for some of the things you mentioned about any ego issues that might have been happening. Yeah, no, I think I think absolutely, and we know that we know that Kandari has um, has a, a hell of an ego of her own. But I can I can fully see how they would just have been incompatible humans, yeah. and both of them may have just been capable of rubbing 
people up the wrong way in general. Um, so the unfortunate comedy of errors forces Kandori back into JWP and after the incident, then we have the split. But there is there's a gap. So this doesn't happen until 1992, probably because uh, of all of the kind of the, the contractual issues and the going backwards and forwards. In 1992, Shinobu Kandori leaves JWP and forms LLPW. Um, she takes several JWP people with her. People like Harley Seidler goes with her as one of the one of those first first people. Um, that becomes kind of it, it kind of prides itself on being a bit more of a shootier promotion and honestly a, a recurring theme that I think we might start talking about a little bit with some of these matches is that LLPW doesn't really produce any stars apart from Shinobu Kandori. No no certainly no one anywhere near on that level like no. you had um probably Eagle Sawai is someone will um we'll uh, cover in later episodes. She was LLPW's representative in the VTOP tournament that was the centrepiece of this show. Um, Harley Saito was, uh, she had a lot of charisma, and but um, it, it, to give you an impression of um, how far Shinobu Kandori was the biggest star in this promotion and how much she positioned herself as such, there was a Tokyo Dome show in uh, 1995 in which it's it's kind of a little bit like the um, the Assemble shows that are going on now with some of the Joshi promotions. They all do a show together. Every company does one match. And on this show at the Tokyo Dome, every uh, professional wrestling company in Japan was allowed to present one match to really showcase what their promotion was about. And the first three uh, matches on the card were Joshi matches. So AJW and JWP both presented tag matches, which went around, around about 15 minutes, featuring a lot of their top stars doing all sorts of like huge moves and mad death-defying shit, real sort of like quote-unquote work rate stuff. Yeah, you would treating ex- it like an exhibition. Exactly, that you would expect from those companies, really showing the athletic skills of their uh, of their roster. Uh, LLPW's uh, offer match on that show was uh, Shinobu Kandori beating Harley Saito in a work shoot in 90 seconds. And that's what she wanted to uh, communicate. Uh, I know which promotion I'd like to watch. <laughs> yes. Just Shinobu Kandori is the best. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I'm going to exhibit how much I can punch your face in. That's, <laughs> that's the exhibition that I am giving here. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I really like a lot of Shinobu Kandori's matches, but I don't necessarily... I don't necessarily think she's somebody that I, I warm to as a performer. I, I think she's someone who I, I, I probably admire from a distance and also vaguely terrifies me, which yeah. is probably an important part of it. So LLPW kind of goes its own way, takes some of the JWP people with it. Um, so what what is Jackie Sato left with? Um, the remains of her kind of entertainer's faction um can't really stick with jwp as it previously was so they they form what they call the jwp project which then becomes jwp joshi Puresu, um or the continuity jwp as perhaps we might like to call it big stepco energy here absolutely you're, you're just jwp in disguise um, so, <laughs> but the thing is the following year they've got a tv deal and in 1994 they released a video game so like They've got stuff going on. Like they, both of the companies actually do quite well at, out of it. And JWP certainly, you know, yeah, suffers a little bit for a while. But it, it seems like they actually continue to be quite strong. So by this point, JWP and LLPW are both big companies that are quite high profile. And in a lot of ways, they probably have to include them in Big Egg. AJW and LLPW um, 
had all had also done kind of entire pay-per-views. So whilst we were looking at these matches on YouTube, we found a, a show from 1993 that was just an AJW versus LLPW show. And and that sounds like it would be all kinds of fun. Yeah. But there's been a lot of interpromotional warfare going backwards between them because these could reasonably be considered like the probably at the time the big three. Yeah, I would, I, w- I would say so. And you always had FMW, yeah. which we'll get to uh, next uh, next episode. But they, there was a women's division. It wasn't a, a, a pure Joshi company. One thing I find quite interesting about, I mean, this this kind of mirrors a dispute that had uh, taken place um, in uh, men's wrestling, also in the eighties, which was the uh, led to the closure of the first UWF, and that was on an even more abstruse point, which was and it wasn't like shooting versus entertaining. It was should our shooting be based more on strikes or submissions, and this led to was it was it, um, Akira Maeda getting Satoru Sayama in the nads uh, for real yeah. during a match, and the, and then the promotion the only real off. form of shit fighting. Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, but like that, it's it's you can you can make the argument when you have these disputes is like, do you even need to uh, like have this um, dichotomy set up between shooting and entertaining? I mean, something like Pride Fighting Championship showed how you can you can marry the two. Really, you had a lot of very entertaining and uh, and charismatic performers who were nevertheless great shooters. And if you look at the shoot style stuff that was going on in the 90s in men's wrestling, um, something like UWFI was a lot more accessible in terms of quote-unquote entertainment than something like Rings. So it's, it's kind of uh, part of the tragedy of it is that you Jackie Sato and Kandori uh, probably could have come to a compromise and settle their differences rather than just wailing on each other's eye sockets uh, but then we did get um, we did get two Joshi promotions out of this mm. who featured on this uh, show so I think you know both JWP and LLPW uh, you know it turned out uh, turned out quite uh, well for them one person's visions loss is your Joshi fans gain she was not blinded I, 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 I must I must say this yeah, no, she, she wasn't. Finally, new vision for Joshi. Oh, fuck's sake! <laughs> but you know what I mean. I, I think these two, in some ways, I'm quite disappointed that we didn't get to see what could have happened if JWP had carried on in that original form. Because you're talking about like within a year, you know, or certainly by the time they've had kind of their their final shooting incident, you're looking at you know 18 months maybe. That's how long JWP lasted in that original form, having those different styles kind of all being represented. And it's, you know, it, I'm really curious to know what that could have become if everybody had just been able to maybe get over themselves a little bit and yeah. just kind of have a bit more give and take in terms of what, what they were willing to be associated with. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of these sliding doors moments about all the various promotions split. And uh, it turns out to be, two viable companies i was going to use the um uh example of uh, all japan and wrestle one but wrestle one didn't turn out to be a viable company so um uh not 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 in the in the long term so i i think you're forgetting about the greatest company in the world um Gleet. <laughs> i think it's pronounced glate confusingly okay. all i can think about seeing that word is like geech gone to heaven mr terwilliger Gleet may very well go to heaven uh, quite soon. Who knows? But that does um, so so much for the background for uh, LLPW, and we've got into um, Shinobu Kandori as well. That brings us on very nicely to the first match we are going to cover on this episode because Kandori is involved in it. 
So this is an LLPW versus AJW tag match. This is match number 10 on Big Egg Wrestling Universe. It pits the LLPW team of Shinobu Kandori and Mikiko Futagami versus the AJW team of Toshio Yamada and Tomoko Watanabe. Uh, so, uh, well, we've, we've covered Kandori, really. So who's yeah. this Who's this Futagami uh, last about? Because we've, we've come to a discovery um, about her uh, in between the first time we recorded this episode. And the second time, and this happened, I think, less than two hours before recording, when we ha- uh, Sarah had this revelation about Makiko Futagami, and we were like, "Oh, holy shit, what the fuck!" So, uh, yeah, Sarah, spill the beans. Yeah. Well, previous iteration of this episode, I would argue, uh, I focused a bit more on the history of the promotions and hadn't really researched the individuals to, to any extent. And I started looking into Makiko Futagami and was like, "I have never heard of this person. Who are they?" And then I realised that nowadays she goes by the name of Gammy, which means that this woman founded Comical and Sexy Pro Wrestling Wave, which I love deeply. <laughs> I am so, so jazzed that we get to mention Comical and Sexy Pro Wrestling Wave on the podcast. A Joshi promotion which, contrary to the name, is neither especially comical nor especially sexy. Absolutely. Different strokes or different folks, George. This is, uh, this is uh, it's, I don't think she's the president anymore. I um, uh, Sarah's going to give us a, a little bit of the background about uh, Mikiko Futagami slash Gami, but uh, mm. I will say at this point that what I primarily know her for is blocking our friend Luke at Oyster's Earrings on Twitter for making gifts of wave shows. <laughs> the fuck play strikes again, George. <laughs> the woke stars have come for the gift makers. Is <laughs> Luke the next victim of cancel culture? <laughs> <laughs> Folks, a gamsel culture. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Before she founded Comical and Sexy Pro Wrestling Wave, um, she actually, um, Kiko Futagami, debuted in 1990. Um, she was kind of homegrown JWP. Um, I will, I, I should preface this by saying, actually, that Cage Match Records and other um, sort of wrestling databases um, for this period and for Joshi, as a general rule, are perilously incomplete. So I can't promise that any of this is actually accurate beyond what I've been able to find. Um, But she seems to have gone to LLPW with Shinobu Kandori kind of in the early, in sort of the early 90s. Um, She was having matches in FMW and in Wrestle and Romance, also known as War. Um, (laughs) There's there's some great names for Japanese wrestling promotions, aren't there? But it seems like LLPW had uh, had a bit of an ongoing thing where they were sort of sending people into these promotions as well. So there was there was a lot more sort of cooperation between the different wrestling companies than I think we give them credit for now. Um, now her cage match profile doesn't even start until 1993, uh, so I'm not entirely sure where any of this is is coming from necessarily but the the generally accepted wisdom is that she debuted in 1990 and multiple other sources confirm that but just no one can account for what happened in those intervening three years i i think i think that like they, they someone just needs to like round up like a, a dozen or so cage match users and just say look stop stop writing like 0.0 reviews of Eddie Steinblock and uh, EPW and like we're putting you on the Joshi card beat get to uploading them you'll be doing the world a solid by the way this is someone who by the time we get to Big Egg her best years are actually still far ahead of her so she's still very early career she doesn't have that many achievements under her belt at this point she went on to have a lot of matches in LLPW um, regularly losing to Kandori, as did. Um, she also went to ASEAN in 1998, uh, and then I think it was 2007, was it, when when Wave 
where, when Wave was founded. Um, mm. But basically, she's been everywhere and done everything because during a lot of this time, she's also been a, a freelancer. You know, she's her cage match profile for sort of those years in the late 90s and the early 2000s is actually quite varied. So it seems like she was doing quite quite a lot of different things there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she is, I think she's someone who, the version of her in this match that we are about to talk about is nowhere near her final form. No, that's not at all. And and that's actually part of the dynamic of this match. And it's something I'm, I'm a sucker for, especially, which is tag teams where there is a great imbalance in power levels between the partners. So not necessarily that you know, have a junior and a senior, but you have someone who is much higher on the card than, uh, than the person they're teamed with. I mean, some of... Just, just to give a couple of examples from uh, men's wrestling, you had um, Misawa and Akiyama in All Japan or Temu and Kawada. And it's actually a really good way of doing things, um, uh, especially if you have to book something like a tag league, because you can have someone who is there to eat pins while keeping their senior partner protected. and uh, But, you know, still keeping it uh, somewhat realistic in terms of the uh, of the kayfabe power levels. And it also provides a really fun dynamic uh, in the, in the matches. Uh, as we will see here, and the uh, the, all J- the AJW team uh, also follows that dynamic as well. I will say I will defend to the death the the greatest tag team in the history, Hiroshi Tanahashi and Captain New Japan. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that was great because like Tanahashi clearly is going to be in the main event of, of Wrestle Kingdom and therefore does not have to give the tiniest shit about the tag league and he's just essentially like giving his useless mates some work. I feel like Akari used to tag with fucking Yoshihashi and like he was uh, not as useless but like you know, get, getting on for it. I mean, just to give you a, a kind of pre-existing example from this show that we've already talked about, um, the Lioness Asuka and Jaguar Kota match, also on Big Egg Wrestling Universe, has the same parallel yeah. where they both had ju- they both had junior partners, but everybody was really there for kind of the two veterans to get in the ring. Yeah, and, and there are some tasty, tasty exchanges, as we'll get to. But first, uh, Sarah, if you could tell us a little bit about the uh, AJW team of Toshio Yamada and Tomoko Watanabe. Okay, so Tomoko Watanabe um, debuted in 1980 and by the way she is currently in pro wrestling marvelous under chigasa nagaya and she's 48 and I, still wrestling i think you'll find this full name is marvelous that's women's pro wrestling i mean i love that as well <laughs> to be fair you can't argue with yeah, it, it's, it's like uh, cannabis is safer than alcohol being the most factually correct political party name <laughs> She's mostly, by the time we get to Big Egg, um, Tomoko Watanabe is actually mostly in the kind of the lower and the mid-card titles. So she had been the AJW champion and the Japanese tag champion with Bat Yoshinaga. Um, she was a five-year veteran, but she's still very much the, the very much the junior here. Um, she's eventually she will become quite a significant talent in the company but we're talking about in the late 90s and the early 2000s when they've already lost a lot of the other people so you're talking about eventually she becomes a a three-time tag champion with Kumiko Mikawa um who's in a shoot fight on this uh on this card so you'll see that yeah we will get to the shoot fights don't you fucking worry when we said we were doing the entirety of big egg we meant it oh yeah We, we committed to this you know um, but Tomoko Watanabe is, as we mentioned, she's very much the junior partner compared to Toshio fucking Yamada. Oh yeah, this woman for real. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like in in my view, like a, a very underrated talent and uh, someone you don't hear talked about as much as your Kongs and your Minami Toyotas, but just a fantastic wrestler in her own right. Yeah, she debuts in 1987 and. 
get this, right, the rookie class of 1987 includes Toshio Yamada, um, Two members of the match that we're going to watch second, Etsuko Mita and Mima Shimoda, and one Manami Toyota. That is a fantastic hit rate in mm-hmm. terms of uh, in terms of those graduates. Yeah, but which one of those do you think won, won Rookie of the Year in 1987? Sure it was Toshio Yamada. Wow. Not go. Manami Toyota, who ended up being like the biggest, you know, one of the biggest stars in the company for years and years. No, it was her. Um, she formed the delightfully named tag team of Dream Orca with Etsukomita. <laughs> Incredible name. It's, it's a great name. Dream, it was, Orca. It's amazing. Dream Orca with Etsukomita. At this point, she's actually the junior champion as well. So she is somebody who is, you know, they're, they're kind of working their way through through the ranks. Toshio Yamada kind of... She's quite promiscuous in her tag team partners, shall we say? Um, so she's also having a, a bit of a, a bit of a fling with tag with, with um, sort of tag team partner Manami Toyota. In 1988, for two people who've been wrestling for sort of a year or so to come sixth in the tag league is actually really impressive. Yeah, Nobody were, expects them to do that. There were well. more than six teams. We did check. Yeah, we did. We did. Um, and also qualifies them for the Europa League, so you know. She does a few in England, not Scotland. Yeah. But by 1989, Dream Orca, so Yamada going back to Etsuko Mita, had won the AJW tag belts, which are like the secondary tag belts in the company. So she's becoming a bit of a tag team specialist here, but not with a kind of a not with a specific tag team in mind, which is interesting. Um, she's also developing her kind of shoot fight credentials. So in 1989, she had a uh, she had a kickboxing match, um, and she then had another one in 1990 against Yumiko Hotta, um, and then. That was January, and then I think it was March 1990. She temporarily retired and came back in December because she had a cervical hernia. Ah, Jesus! I don't even have a cervix, and that's given me the boke. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure how I wasn't sure how 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 you would react to this, but yes, no, that filled me that, with utter sounds horror. Sounds grim. Yumiko Hotter, incidentally, was the person who did end up fighting Gary Garcia in Rising after Shinobu Kandori quite fairly wussed out of the fight. Absolutely. We'll get to Hotter later. Yeah. So, Toshio Yamada has a cervical hernia and temporarily retires, but is back in nine months. So she comes back sort of by the end of 1990. Um, really, a, a lot of her kind of sort of rise to prominence comes in 1991 and after so she was sent on an excursion with Kyoko Inoue where they went to Mexico in 1991 um that was the same year that they came back for that year's Tag League and scored a massive upset by beating Jungle Jack, i.e. Aja Kong and David Bay by Kimura in the final of the Tag League um so that was amazing um I'm, I'm the sorry magic of the cup Ronnie Radford etc what a banana skin but at the same time, um, so the feud is kind of ongoing with Manami Toyota as well, and they are they are frenemies, shall we say? Yeah. So they kind of have the they're, they're, yeah, so they're they're tagging together off and on, but they're also kind of having quite a few singles matches together, and they have this incredible match in 1992, which is a 30 minute draw. and then they get five minutes of extra time and it's still a draw. and then they get five minutes of extra time and it's still a draw. Um, it's absolutely bonkers that it's one of the matches that kind of goes down as being one of the best matches mm. of kind of the like the, the 90s for, for, for the company um it does make you think that like with that sort of thing i'm surprised nobody's came up with a device akin to the penalty shootout 
whereby someone will win by some bizarre method, like make it two counts or something right. like that. I, they, they do do that actually in um you know those new that New Year's tag tournament they do. Um, yes. Like with Big Japan and DDT and that, that is how they they do ten minute uh, time limits for the matches, and yeah. if it goes to extra time, I think it's the first to get a one count or something like that. Um, I was I was thinking, you know, that there's a video of um the AJW wrestlers having a contest to see you could do the highest drop kick. They have to like hit this ball that's in the air, like that. <laughs> that would probably be a good way of doing that. Although I think Minami Toyota would have won every time. Yes, yeah, be like Germany in that sense. Yeah. <laughs> so. This feud is growing. They have this massive match. At the same time, they are a tag team. So they had the UWA tag team belts, which uh, which we're going to talk about a bit later. And then they had a winner-takes-all match with the WWWA tag champions, who were Jungle Jack. Um, so And those are that's kind of the top tag belts in, in the company. Um, the idea of this being winner-takes-all and then Yamada and Toyota win it's a massive upset, but the people with the junior titles basically, be, you know, beat two, beat one of the biggest sort of tag teams in the company. Um, Toshio Yamada also manages to feud and be a tag team with Akira Hokuto throughout <laughs> There's so much going on here where it's like it's like the same six people just in rotating casts of like tagging, feuding, tagging, feuding, oh, friends. Yeah, well, I mean, the the feud with Toyota is is at a point where they have a hair versus hair match in '92 as well, um, which is. Also incredible by all accounts. Um, Manama Toyota wins, but she objects so much because it's also her friend and she respects her and the match has been so good up until that point that Manami Toyota cries, protests and says, no, she shouldn't have to lose her hair and then cuts part of her own hair in protest. Like it, It's that level of kind of intense emotion. And can you imagine if that had happened with Chigusa Nagayo in 1985? People yeah. would have been pulled out of the audience. <laughs> by security. What, what happened... What happened after? Was it just like Minamoto's like Toyota's like, no, I will I will take the bullet for my friend and I will shave my own hair and they're like, Yeah, okay, but she she is still gonna have to be bald though. But I watched a, a programme on Friday called Up for it and uh, featuring a friend of the show, Christopher MacArthur Boyd, where they cut uh, people's hair despite having no hairdressing experience whatsoever. Oh no. Yeah. His mum and dad are both hairdressers. <laughs> and he's like, it's the one episode that they're most ashamed of me being on. Because they seem to try to cut people's hair, and they all look like utter pricks, and they know they look like utter pricks. And I imagine Manami too are sitting there with a big bit of clump of bald patch. Yeah. If there's one thing we know from a lot of people in lockdown, it's that just because you can cut your own hair does not necessarily mean that you should. Yes. It's been a yeah, it's been it's been a learning experience for many people, and Manami Toyota could have told them all of this in 1992, from the sounds of it. Um, <laughs> so thus begins the point where. Kind of Toshio Yamada is in various forms. She she's kind of tag champion an awful lot. Um, she and Manami Toyota main event the first Dream Slam in 1993 um, versus the FMW combination of Combat Toyota and Megumi Kudo. So the interpromotional stuff is very much already going on in the background as well, and they're representing the company. But this match is apparently so good that it becomes Dave Meltzer's 1993 match of the year. Um, and I imagine that there aren't that many years where the where a women's match actually comes out on top. It's, it's quite funny actually because like there's there's a lot of people who tell you that wasn't even the best match on that show. Yeah. Is is that not the show that's got Hokuto versus Kandori as well? Oh, is it? I think it is. Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure. As well as like you look that. at what else was going on in the landscape in Japan at that time, where you had 
all Japan churning out classic after classic. I know they go on in like 94, 95 where they get the absolute all-time ones, but I mean, they were still churning out incredible matches at this time in both oh, the yeah. singles and tag divisions. New Japan, um, I mean, you had like uh, Muta and Chono and stuff like that, or maybe not Chono, but you know what I mean. But like, they, <laughs> they, they, were, they were doing like some good quality stuff, like junior matches and stuff like that as well with Liger and that. Yeah, yeah. And you look at like Rings and UWFI, and uh, even like the Onita matches were a novelty at that point because that was around about the time of Onita Funk. Like yeah, the, yeah, these yeah. sort of things were happening. Hayabusa was doing incredible stuff, and that was picked as the the, the match of the year. Is you know quite incredible. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's really impressive. Like I I need to go back and basically watch all of these matches. I'm just going to spend. Uh, I might end up spending um, some of the time off that I've got booked in November just binging some of these matches because it sounds incredible to be honest. Is this what we're going to do for our Patreon? Where we're just going to re- review the Dream Slams next? Yeah, yeah, Patreon listeners can also get in depth stories about our oh. time at the JWP of universities. Yeah. We're not going through it match by match. We are not doing this again in terms of like another seminal Joshi show. This is your lot. <laughs> In terms of uh, in terms of this form of deep dive. Oh my god, yeah, um, yeah, but at the same time, so that that's Dream Slam one. At Dream Slam two, I don't think it's the main event, but they defend the they defend the titles again against JWP's Dynamite Kansai and Mayu Miyazaki. So they are, you know, people are being lined up for Yamada to knock down essentially in variations with with of her tag team. Um, on October the 9th, nineteen ninety four. Toyota and Yamada drop the tag belts to the delightfully named Double Inoue, which is Kyoko and Takako Inoue, despite the fact that they are no relation, which I find really, really frustrating. Um, I'm seeing double here, four Inoues. Exactly, exactly. Um, But yeah, so that's really, from this point, she tends to sort of start edging her way down the card. So by 1997, she's actually just gone to Gaia, Hmm. so she's already working over there. So really, and that's so she drops the belts like six weeks before Big Egg, and this is really her kind of at her pinnacle and maybe sort of slightly on her way down. But she's obviously parlayed that kind of shoot background into something really into something kind of really special because I mean we'll talk about the match now, but she she's astonishing and I yeah. do think she is someone who is such a natural opposite of Kandorian in you know mirror image in some ways she seems to be modeling herself on the same on the same template yeah i mean make no mistake uh toshio yamada is at this point one of the top stars in ajw i think she um could have considered herself somewhat unlucky not to be one of the five from the company that end up in the vtop tournament um like you could based on what she was doing in the in the first half of the 90s uh, she could certainly have got there, but she is given um, an important role on the undercard, which is defending the honour of her promotion against um, the top star in LLPW, in which she uh, uh, attempts to do so in this tag match. I think that if Shinobu Kandari had been in the VTOP tournament, then Toshio Yamada would have been in the VTOP tournament. Yeah, I, I and think so. And the reason so, yeah. why Shinobu Kandari is not in the VTOP tournament is because they knew that who they needed to win the VTOP tournament, and it wasn't going to be Kandari. Yes. So you have to put her somewhere else where she can get a win with relatively little damage being done yeah. for your ongoing storytelling. Yeah. For who goes over in this match, by the way, but um, <laughs> I think I think from how we've built up Shinobu Kandori's uh, kayfabe power level, probably shouldn't be very surprised by this. <laughs> 
this match is here for Shana Bakandori to win. Oh yeah, and uh, and she does a very good job of it. So um, I'm enjoying the. We, we always end up talking about the outfits on this show, but let's let's do it anyway. Um, Yamada's got this coat which makes her look like a member of the Obelisk Blue House in uh, Yu-Gi-Oh GX. I enjoyed this very much. Literally, As- a reference no one will get. Well, this is because nobody watched Yu-Gi-Oh GX. Oh yes, and I say this as someone who copiously just spurts out references that nobody gets but even for us george that is a low in terms of references yeah (laughs) fucking hell getting ganged up on jesus after after the week at work that i've had (laughs) i i actually love that once she takes off what you refer to as her obelisk blue coat um she's pretty much got the same shade of purple as kandori and i'm just like this it's purple, but it's also a red rag to a bull. What I like about Yamada's gear is she always had her own name on it. Yes. Just so you don't forget what her who she is. So like, I think that I think that's handy in this match. I won't lie. Yeah. <laughs> but but all that Kandori, um, we've we've sort of built up as this uh, no nonsense, take no shit uh, shoot fighter. A lot of purple sequins on her gear. So certainly the uh, the coach she comes to the um, to the ring with um, to by the way an amazing absolute rip-off of Thunderstruck by ACDC. Um, the uh, the other team, actually, their theme seemed to be rip-off from the theme from Ion Springfield. Oh my god, it really is. Fucking hell. Yeah, I was like, is this the theme from Ion Springfield? It's a little bit different, but you know, the same way that Jimmy Hart's were legally distinct from the WWF versions. Yeah. I felt like yeah, I felt like Shinobu Kandori's idea was that she was kind of, her coat and everything was quite flamboyant boxer kind of yeah. in its style. I feel like that was kind of what she was leaning into. Tomoko Watanabe coming out with a rope that says opponent. <laughs> I, w- I will say, I think there is a degree of hardness in winning sequence in the yeah. sense that it, you have to be so confident in your abilities, you can go out in the most garish outfit. And know that nobody will take the piss out of you. Oh, oh yeah. And if they do take the piss out of you, you'll knock them out. It's like, you know, Pete Burns from yeah, Dead yeah, or Alive. Yeah. Pete Burns from Dead or Alive used to go to the pubs and clubs in Liverpool in full drag. And he was the most insane man in, in Liverpool because he would just go and then someone would immediately shout some homophobic abuse at him and he'd go, right, oh, I'll fucking fight you right now. And every week he would just go out, have a fight with someone in drag, beat the fuck out of them. Yeah, Pete Burns said uh, alive was hard as fuck. Yeah, he's like, he's like he has nails, but he just used to because he knew that if he dressed like that, like it 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 gave him a hardness that just wearing normal clothes wouldn't. Yeah. It was very it's, strange. It's, it's kind of like Minoru Suzuki, where he's like, yeah, his hair is really stupid. Are you going to tell him? Feel free to tell him. I'm sure he'll appreciate it. <laughs> Speaking of stupid hair, by the way, um, Shinobu Kandori, I don't think, ever truly gets enough credit for her Elvis quiff, which seems to tell her that as well as, being, as well as being a flamboyant boxer, she's also cosplaying a jet from West Side uh, Story. You were going Elvis. <laughs> I was I was thinking two words here, Pat Butcher. Oh, yes. God. Yes. Black hair rather than blonde. Who is harder, Shinobu Kandori or her Pat Butcher? Imagine oh, Shinobu Kandori with a rolling pin, Jesus. <laughs> uh, I want to see her as the, the landlord in the pub from EastEnders. The Queen Vic, that's it. <laughs> I want her to be the landlord in the Queen Vic, uh, because I think that would be an incredible... Just, you know, like, um, like Barbara Windsor's away on holiday for the week, 
So they've got um, Shinobu Kandori's came in um, after her fight in Rising. Rossi Agawa, Rossi Agawa backstage wearing nothing but a spinning bow tie like Frank. Oh, no! <laughs> he, he has definitely that done that. He has categorically done that. Oh, we can see that. Um, and then Gabby Garcia comes in for a quiet pain and it all just fucking spirals out of control. This is actually quite apt. Gabby, she's not worth it. Leave it! Most importantly, remember that um, Frank Butcher with the spinning bow tie incident, that happened when he was married to Peggy Mitchell and he was playing away with Pat Butcher, so who was actually Pat Evans at the time because she was married to Roy, so who was Barry's dad. I <laughs> remember this. So I, I think it's important to point out that in this scenario, the fight that happens, because there is definitely a moment where Peggy gives Pat a massive slap in the Queen Vic, Gabby Garcia is Barbara Windsor. You and you and there uh, you have it. And we're back on Big EastEnders podcasting universe. <laughs> um, this, this might be my favourite uh, episode of this podcast because we've literally talked fuck all about wrestling. We've <laughs> talked about like people getting detained but, and EastEnders. I mean, it, it, and... it's it's apt patter for this uh, match because like Sarah and I spent a lot of it like wondering if there was any legit beef between Kandori and Yamada because the fucking strikes they are throwing at each other they are... each other and I love it it's I mean even before the bell Yamada throws a little kick at Kandori there's certainly some aggro in there and then and this is what I love about this match Futagami like there's there's some real please notice me senpai energy from uh from the juniors in this match because they're trying to like mix it up with uh with the uh, the most powerful member of the opposing team so Futagami's in and like hitting this sort of reverse exploder on uh, on Yamada and Watanabe is doing this like dive to the outside and what I like what I like about this is it is the first like couple of minutes are mostly uh, Futagami trying it on with Yamada Watanabe trying it on with Kandori but it really doesn't take them that long for Yamada and Kandori to be in the ring um, and it re- it really gives like a sort of immediacy to it and the idea that this match could end at any time right down to the fact that while uh, Yamada is uh, beating on Futagami in the ring uh, Watanabe is holding Kandori at bay on the outside in a way that you pretty much might in the end stages of a tag match you know what I mean like when uh, yeah. like you get this and you, this doesn't really happen in American tag wrestling but it certainly does in Japan where they're trying to hold the uh, partners on the outside so that the people in the ring can like hit their finisher uh, I thought that was quite an interesting thing that you don't really often see but when Yamada and Kandori are in the ring together uh, they just start with a gigantic slap fight um, after which Kandori uh, takes uh, Yamada outside and gives her a uh, some sort of like swinging sleeper on the ramp. I loved that so much. It was like it was a Cesaro swing but instead of having them by the legs you had them by the neck. I, I I really love how like um uh, it's kind of like, do you remember when uh, Paige did the Scorpion crosslock on the announcer's table in WWE? And they're like, by God, not on the announcer's table. It's like, how does that make it hurt anymore? Like, it's, it's the same move. Should we, like, be lying on those pens and stuff that they have? Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's just like, I, I guess it makes sense more as a as a kind of um, power move. In the way, like, yeah, I'm going to just, like, go up on the ramp and do this. Um, the, the other great thing is that um, uh, Kandori kind of sleepers Yamada off the apron into the ring after that. <laughs> she just hauls her up by her neck over the ropes. The, the it's thing, incredibly gnarly. The thing I love about this match so much, right, is that uh, Yamada and Kandori just want to fight each other. They don't really have any concern for their tag partners whatsoever. They yes. fight each other. To the point where 
there, there's several moments in this where I see the juniors running in to interfere, and it doesn't look like they're trying to make the save of their team. They're just genuinely trying to go, right, lads, come on, break up, come on. This has gone too far. We need to we need to calm it down. Back in the ring. Like, they're doing the ref's job. It really feels like that. But this this match, it really reminded me, I have a this another anecdote. I do apologise for going off on a tangent here, but um, I, have a, I play Magic Gathering quite a bit. Um, not now because well obviously you know but um, I, I used to play quite a lot and I had a group of friends who I used to play with quite a lot and we played six or seven multiplayer games and stuff like that be all over the place but I have a, spe- a specific friend called Jack who me and him have a tacit understanding in a game just no matter what is going on we only fight each other because we like to take the piss out of each other and even when it's highly illogical to throw stuff as to to mystic uh, elvish mystic, we will still do it because it's far funnier as just completely annihilate each other. Like there has been literal games where there's been a guy who's running away with the game, and I have a card that can stop him, and everyone is like, David, please, for the love of God, please take a turn out from hitting Jack to please. Stop this threat. You will save everyone in the game. You will be a hero. Please do this. And I'll be like, nope, 12 damage to Jack. Because it's <laughs> an unwritten code that we just kill each other. And we just murder each other into the ground. And then whoever is left will have to, you know, fight on the, whatever scraps he's got left against the other people who have presumably irradiated each other by that point as well. But we this felt like this where they never erred from just beating the fuck out of each other and doesn't really care about winning the match. They'd be gladly let their partner lose this match if it means oh, he can beat the yeah. fuck out of the other guy. There's a really, there's a really funny bit in which um, Futagami is so eager to please Senpai that she uh, tags in and quickly gets her ass kicked by Watanabe. So Kandori motions to, like, she's holding her arm out, like, no, no, tag me back in, seriously. You're not up to it. And then Futagami refuses and then Watanabe beats her up some more. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> by the way big Chihiro Hashimoto energy for me I feel like she's built similarly but she kind of carries herself in a kind of comparable way yeah I, yeah. I, 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 I get that like uh, she's uh, one of these she, she she wrestles like not like a bull but like you know what I mean like a boulder she's uh, yeah. she she does a lot of moves where she like uses her whole body to uh, to inflict pain like the the big big sentons you know what I mean like uh, seems like she's like fairly hard to shift there's a really nice dive to the outside that she does in here. And when I say nice, I mean it has absolutely no grace or elegance whatsoever. <laughs> like, she just goes for it yeah, and comes down and it's great. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really, really like her in this match. Actually. She does this later, actually. She um, breaks up a headlock that Kandori's doing with a top row back handle, which is, is great because it's just so unnecessary. My favourite bit of this whole match, and, and and there are many of them to be fair, but the thing that I love is um, so Yamada kicks Kandori while she's down on the ropes, and it looks nasty as well. It looks really, really bad. Oh, um, and yeah, but then Kandori just looks up and looks her straight in the eye and looks at her like she's dirt. And at that moment, you're just like, these women want to kill each other. <laughs> like right. what I love about this match is that it constantly feels like it's it's constantly on the verge of derailing into a shoot. Like I, I can't tell that they I can't tell if these people are actually friends behind the scenes. Like 
who knows that? Who can tell that? Like, <laughs> I think it's not. It's not so much like you know how uh, Shibata and Ishii would always have these matches in New Japan where they hit each other really hard, but you could tell there was like this sort of uh, Bushido spirit that existed between them and this sort of mutual respect where, mm-hmm. like, yeah, we we respect each other uh, in this sort of very stereotypically masculine way. Yeah. But yeah, it's. There is none of that respect in No, no, it's just, they're they're hitting each other really hard, but there's also this, like, just just big amount of aggro, like, there's, uh, not only do you have the uh, Kandori just looking daggers after no-selling this kick, there's this bit where Kandori just headbutts Watanabe a a lot, and then just give Yamada, who's standing on the apron, this sadistic thumbs up before going back to the headbutting. (laughs) It's so cruel. (laughs) Just a, a bit of context on on the Kandorian um, Yamada beef. I I did I did look it up, and the only interaction that I could see between them from the past is that um, earlier that year, so in April 1994, um, Soshio Yamada and Yumiko Hotta had defeated Harley Saito and Shinobu Kandori at an AJW show. So I suppose. I mean, we're talking about a gap of seven and a bit months, but I think Toshio Yamada has a win over Kandori yeah. going into this. And it seems like neither of them has forgiven each other for whatever happened in the previous match. It's like, they- staggering that, like, if, if they didn't do a singles match after this, it is, just blows my mind because, like, the heat they build up on each other is uh, is absolutely is just absolutely phenomenal. And this, this isn't, isn't actually to discount um, the the stuff between Futagami and Watanabe because whereas uh, Kandori and Yamada are focusing on hitting each other really hard with strikes, uh, Futagami and Watanabe uh, are focusing instead on dropping each other on their head. So um, Futagami gets a two on Watanabe with this... Um, uh, it looks a bit like Rhea Ripley's finisher. It's like this sort of pump handle powerbomb uh, type thing. And then Watanabe responds in... Uh, in kind with this just horrendous looking regal plex which is uh broken up by kandori kicking the ref oh, <laughs> you can kind of you can do what the fuck you want to refs in ajw it's great no, in battle there is no law george there, there really isn't like uh so these two uh these two juniors are giving you know they're giving it the big one in regards to each other and they're they're trying to do it to the uh, to the other people on the uh, the other team as well, but it's just not really working for them. Yeah, you kind of feel bad for them because there's you know there's notice me senpai energy, but there's also notice me audience energy. But the the beef is so intense and so keenly felt between Kandori and Yamada that I honestly I don't think anybody's really looking at them. I mean, you, you're definitely looking at them during you know when they get moments to mix it up and when they kind of. They are, in some ways, some of the exclamation marks on this. So, you know, you get really good sort of pin breaking up from Watanabe and things like that. But they are, they're nobody's primary focus as you watch this match, I think. Yeah, it's, uh, there's, there's another great instance of uh, Kandori sort of being a maverick who doesn't play by the rules when she, uh, so she's on the on the apron about to make the tag and uh, she kind of, preempt her own tag by coming in the ring, giving Watanabe a tiger driver, and then going back to the apron and tagging in. It's oh, it, it's, so it's incredible. I, I, I like Yamada, uh, although she kind of starts the aggro um, uh, against Kandori before the bell, like Kandori's definitely uh, coming across as this agent of chaos who is like not just a very dangerous fighter, but she's She's something different from what they have in AJW, and her going against the rules um, 
goes against that. In the, and this kind of mirrors what happened in real life with Sato starting on Kandori, but Kandori sure as hell finished it. Mm, certainly true. I think that the, I, I don't know whether anybody else is sort of just thinking about how this match finishes as well, but I absolutely loved that it was in some ways it kind of felt like it was the wrong call for Kandori to straight out tap out Toshio Yamada. Um, but Although maybe in the bigger scheme of things, Kandori wanting to get her win back from the previous match yes. might have, you know, probably does have a lot to do with that. But it's a lovely transition because Yamada, um, I think she's going for crossbody. I I don't know. It's kind of more seems like the flying nothing. Yeah. Like it, she's certainly not horizontal when she's doing this move. Yeah. She tries to do something off the top rope, shall we say? Yeah. Well, Kandori basically just counters it, sort of grabs her and counters it into this horrendous armbar that's kind of right in the middle of the ring. And I think Yamada just knows that she's got nowhere else to go and that's when she taps out. Yeah, it's really interesting because um, Kandori certainly could have uh, tapped out Watanabe, but like the fact that she beat the uh, the senior member on the team and like effective use of this uh, in Japanese wrestling is uh, something I really like, whereby if you look at a tag match and... Uh, you see someone on each team who is clearly there to take the fall. And, you know, 95% of the time, that is what happens. But when uh, someone, uh, you know, when, when the person who is the most powerful member of the team does get pinned, it's like, I know, I know, I know Chikara is very much cancelled now. But the fact that um, King of Trios 2017, when uh, Mako Satomura was the one Pete Dunne pinned in the final, Sarah still not got over this, but... Um, the, the fact that he pinned the, the senior member of the Sendai Girls team was you know, something that's uh, quite significant. It's a similar way to this. Um, y- Yamada in mitigation was trying to uh, give Kandori the uh, Kodomi Valentine uh, not once but twice. We'll get to this this uh, rather horrendous move in episode six, but suffice it to say her neck would have been very much forfeit if she'd have, uh, if she'd have hit it. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, the, the finish is kind of uh, a bit out of nowhere, but it kind of fits with the match. So, you know, <laughs> like, um, and uh, there's a bit of aggro after as well. So yes. they don't even, uh, d- d- don't even, don't, the, the fact that the match is over does not uh, prevent Yamada and Kandori from trying to knock seven sh- shades of shit out of each other. Um, it's very much the ice hockey analogy of, you know, <laughs> there was a fight and, an, and a wrestling match broke out at some point. During yeah. the fight, yeah, I think that's probably fair. Yeah, it's uh, it's I I I I thought this match was uh, tremendous. It's one of the, I think, well, certainly my favorite match we've covered on the podcast so far. Um, it's just uh, a real, I think, hidden gem. People don't talk about this match very much, um, but like it's one of those things where you look on the undercard. If you see Shinobu Kandori is in a match, probably going to be good. If you see Toshio Yamada is in the match, probably going to be good. And so I had expectations of this match going in. And I expect it would be somewhat stiff because of Kandori's presence in it. But I did not for a minute expect just the levels of brutal violence that these women would inflict upon each other. I thought this was great. Yeah, I agree. I, I thought it was a fantastic match. They've been given another, say, five minutes. This, would have been, this they could have easily have been a main event match. It was excellent. Um, it's it's fantastic. Um, you don't quite see this level of danger in a match very often, in the sense that, as you say, it can just fall off the rails at any point, and it just looks at all points like they could just go too far or like run into the crowd and start brawling in the crowd and like knock out a fan with a 
jab or something. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they just felt like that had that energy where you did not know what was coming next, but you didn't want to know because yeah, yeah. you knew it was going to be hideous and you would much rather not watch it. But it's very gripping as well, whereby you're just like, you can't turn away from it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can guarantee that there were, this was very much a match. I think, um, you know, they were really trying to put something together that people would remember in six hours time after all of the other other matches have finished. I can guarantee there were people who were coming out of this show thinking, well, yeah, you know, you know the VTOP tournament was good, but hey, that uh, that tag match uh, with Kandori and Yamada, uh, that was that was really something. I can guarantee there were people who would have come away thinking this match was the best on the show. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. definitely. And don't get me wrong, I know that there are there are still some incredible matches on this show that we haven't even gotten to gotten to talking about yet, and we might not for a few weeks. But as a rule, on there's an awful lot of shows I've seen where this would have been the best match on them by a country match. Oh god, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought this, I, I thought this match was absolutely brilliant. I love matches like this that kind of have this chaotic energy about them where they it's like it's a train that's kind of constantly just wobbling around a little bit on the tracks and you never know at what point it's just going to explode into brutal violence yeah and it's not something you get that much of in joshi nowadays like um you you, you do get the odd sort of like chaos brawl but um like this style of wrestling isn't isn't done so much now and that i think that's really the um uh you know, in insofar as there is, there is an LLPW influence on this show stylistically as well as in terms of personnel, I think this show is definitely is a Kandori match. I, I would say as well, play. I don't even know if I would class it as a chaos brawl in the sense a chaos brawl is very much your, uh, I mean, it's the same idea, but your LA Park Rush, for example, is oh, the yeah, primo yeah. chaos yeah. brawl where they grab stuff in the crowd and they start hitting each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. It's got a different energy to it where they're going all around the crowd and stuff. This didn't do that, but it was chaotic. And it, yeah, it was just, it's, it's, a, it's a really, really unique match in that sense where you don't know where it's going to go, but it doesn't. Usually you have to go with the scissors and the, you know, uh, weapons and stuff like that. In Joshi, it would be like scissors and stuff like that. But in, you know, like LA Park and stuff that are very famous for those sort of matches where they pull out weird weapons and stuff. and it goes all over the place. They didn't need to do that. They they just used their, their fists and their forearms. And it's, yeah, it's it's a real unique energy to it. So uh, the, the violence doesn't uh, doesn't especially stop with the, uh, the next match on the card, which coincidentally is the next match we are going to be talking about. It is match number 11. The UWA Women's Tag Team Championship is on the line as Edsko Mita and Mima Shimoda, the champions uh, of AJW, well, kind of, we'll get to that, um, de- defend against the uh, more LLPW wrestlers, uh, Michiko Nagashima and Yasha Kuanai. So, Sarah, what is the deal with... with with this match, what's what's going on here? Okay. What is a UWE and how do we kill it? <laughs> <laughs> UWE, a Mexican literally promotion founded in 1975. I mean, it actually falls in 1995. So you know, it it burned it burned bright for 20 years, um, and it kind of falls apart very soon after. It is circling the drain at the it, time of this really show. It really is. It really is, actually. Um, but It seems to me it lived its life like a candle in the wind, much like other promotion Diana. Um, <laughs> Goodbye, Mexico's roast. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
One of the many things I love about UWA is that that's not the actual company's name. It's actually known as Lucha Libre Internazionale, which is LLI, one would imagine. However, in order to give itself some credibility, it has it, it creates a fictional sanctioning body for all of its titles, which it calls the UWA. And as a result of this, all of their titles are the UWA, insert thing here, championships. So, and eventually the promotion just becomes known as that. So it's Yeah, like, yeah I know it as UWA. Like, I, I'd not heard of this uh, LLI before. Uh... It, it's, all, it's all anybody really knows, knows of them. But, you know, it's the same as if, you know, what if UFC suddenly became known as, like, the Los Angeles State Commission? <laughs> Or something like that, you know, the sanctioning body for all of its fights. Um, and I, I love the fact that they made it up as well. Like they didn't have a sanctioning yeah. body; they just wanted someone who looked official to hold a card. This is a Japanese thing. Like the IWGP stands for International uh, uh, Wrestling Grand Prix, which was the fictional sanctioning body for uh, for New Japan. Yeah. Similarly, with the Pacific Wrestling Federation in All um, Japan, the P- PWF was the kayfabe sanctioning body, and there, one of the titles which made up the Triple Crown was the PWF Heavyweight Championship. Yeah. I just fucking love a salary man behind an office desk ruling on championship decisions. It's, <laughs> and clearly they do too. I just, yeah, like the, you need to have a man in a, a, a quite a dour man um, in a suit ruling on like contentious decisions. I feel that's uh, yeah, really I an mean, integral part of a wrestling promotion. I mean, I I mostly know UWA UWA for its uh, well top star Kanek, who was a um, very big name in uh, in Mexico, and the fact that um, uh, at the age of I think sixty, Luthez had a run with its heavyweight title in the in the late seventies. Nice to see hot young talent bursting through <laughs> and getting a run with the belt. Young lion checks notes Luthez with the UWA title. I mean, look, he did wear black. He did wear black trunks. What more do you want? I mean, it doesn't surprise me that they were having those, they had those kind of people coming in because they established working agreements deliberately with people in different markets. So at one point they had a working agreement with the WWF. Um, they had New Japan as well. And crucially, JWP. Um, so Jackie Sato's promotion that we've talked about here. Um, the, the women's tag titles make their way over to Japan and Japanese promotions tend to really get on well with the idea of oh it's a, a it's another country's title and therefore it's very prestigious and you can kind of uh, it seems to be a bit of a recurring thing yeah i mean this goes back to um the back, again sorry to start uh keep harping on about rikido's but it, it is relevant in this case uh anyone would think you'd written a book about him or something skip to the end of the episode for folks guys so um the um as you know don't listen to this it's good uh so the um so Rikido's and uh, challenged uh, the aforementioned Luthez for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. But when it came, they, they'd had uh, a Japanese Heavyweight Championship and an All Asia Heavyweight Championship. But when it came time to give Rikido's and a title that was really uh, uh, prestigious, um, it had to come from abroad. They felt so. Uh, Luthez dropped a belt which would become known as the NWA International Heavyweight Championship to him. Um, it was actually the sort of ersatz world title that Luthez had been touring Europe with in 1957 after there was a, a dispute in a title match and there was two people claiming the title. So that became a title, um, an actual championship separate from the NWA world title and passed to Rikidos. And similarly, obviously, we've had the WWWA belt in, uh, in AJW. That was uh, originally an American title, Mildred Burke. And uh, also uh, in 1973, New Japan established a top title called the NWF Heavyweight Championship. Now, NWF was a 
uh, American territory that had gone out of business that year. And so Enoki bought up the intellectual property of the belt. Uh, Did he go of... to the auction? Oh, you, know, the back, you know, they have bankruptcy <laughs> auctions. Or maybe it was in storage hunters and he just opened up a lot and then the end of UF. He's in there with Maven's Tough Enough trophy. And, <laughs> and uh, but yeah, so Inoki was like, okay, well, this is a defunct territory. It's gone out of business. But, you know, the Japanese fans will think, oh, he's won a belt in America. That, that's, uh, I, I want to check this guy via out. The, via a contest at auction. Yes, uh, the, 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 the alternative to staging a tournament in Rio. And uh, actually, Yoshihiro Takeyama bought back the NWF Heavyweight Championship in the early 2000s as kind of a tie to the legacy of Inoki and Inokiism. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly not the first time that uh, foreign tag titles will come over to Japan. Yeah. In some ways, the, these titles were kind of treated with almost more prestige in AJW than maybe they would have been at home. I think it's they're never the top titles they really really they are a they're a secondary tag belt in AJW and, and JWP and elsewhere um wherever they go they're never the biggest they're never the biggest belts um but they are so they end up mostly being used in JWP um after the peso collapsed in the mid 90s you mentioned a, a downturn in the Mexican economy um the business basically folded um so but it is it is kind of in its in its death throes by the time we get we get to big egg but the, the crossover has been quite well established by this point. So Cutie Suzuki had held their junior championship. Yumiko Hotta and Takako Inoue had previously held these tag belts. Harley Saito had had the international belt. Um, so, you know, it, it's a close relationship. Um, but the UWA belts kind of didn't, they didn't necessarily mean much to anybody, except that they were something that could be fought over more broadly yeah, by mean, people in or from different promotions. I mean, it's quite interesting to note that the Uzulue Women's Tag Championship uh, is on the line on this show, but neither set of AJW's own tag titles were. So yeah. I think that's something that's quite interesting. This weird afterlife that UWA belts uh, had after the company folded, they went over to all sorts of places. I don't know if the UWA trios belts are still defended, but they certainly were as late as 2009 because I remember one of the first DDT matches I ever saw was a three-way trios match. Uh, for three sets of trios belts, one of which was the UWA uh, straps, in which one of the teams was um, uh, a child luchador called Mr. Six, and by child I mean like primary school age, teaming with Riho, who um, was about 13, 14 at the time, and the third member of the team was the great Kajiga, who was 68 years old. (laughs) (laughs) Accounting for a large amount. It's one of my favorite... I've never seen this dynamic again in a team, but it's basically like a grandpa trying to defend his like wayward kids who like just get in fights all the time. It's really good. But I wonder what would the average have been for that team? It'd, be, it'd probably be like twenty nine or something. That would be yeah, yeah. Be like bad on average. The, um, the great Kadika accounting for approximately eighty five percent of the age of that team. But um, as well as that, the UWA was part of the J Crown as well. I know we mentioned the J Crown a couple of times, but um, yeah, UWA belt, the uh, cruiserweight belt, or whatever ostensible weight class it gave it, um, was involved in the J Crown as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's really interesting that when we, you know, it, the Big Egg match that we are looking at, these belts which are kind of known for having made their way into JWP, are being contested between an, a pair of people from AJW and a pair of people from LLPW. Like, that's yeah. how flu- that's how fluid these belts were, because they don't, they're not 
integral to any one promotion's kind of sort of brand or corporate identity or anything. So they can actually move them around and do something a bit different with them. It's quite interesting to say that um, uh, there doesn't seem to have been this exclusivity in terms of um, like this Mexican promotion works with this Joshi promotion and so on and so forth, because you had AJW people also going over to CMLL at this time. Yeah. And you had, you seem to have had uh, crossovers between UWA and multiple Joshi promotions. And, you know, LCO being... Uh, I should say, uh, you won't know who also is at this point, that's going to be through Mishimoda, uh, being technically AJW, but uh, as Sarah will tell you, uh, their status as to who they are representing in this match is kind of a little bit complicated. Yes, it is. Now, let me tell you something about Etikomita and Mishimoda, also known as Las Cachoras Orientales, LCO. Those words roughly translate, and God bless the euphemistic, sensitive soul whom I saw on the internet had translated it as the Oriental Puppies. Um, but <laughs> oh God, no, that just brings up the spectre of Jerry Lawler. It really does, but uh, <laughs> Las, Las Cachorras Orientales is um, the Oriental Bitches. N- n- nice, uh, nice PC uh, name that the Mexicans have given them. Well, I so I don't particularly know where that where, where that name came from. They may have, you know, they may have adopted it for themselves. It is a it is a name that was get, it's a name that they acquire somehow during their tour of Mexico. Um, it actually makes me wonder. Um, so we do have thinking about the way that someone like Naito comes back from Mexico, sort of in the last few years, and starts kind of adopting as his as his symbol and kind of some of the things that had been done to him by way of the abuse he'd received in Mexico from some of the staff as well. So the thing that he, he does with his eye and that being a direct reference to the abuse that he's got. In some ways, maybe this is, I don't know, maybe this is a tradition of people, uh, of people sort of taking things that are things that are done to them and, and kind of earning them. Mm, I, yeah. I don't really know what the background is, um, but either way, I mean, it's badass. Like the, the, these women are badasses. I love them so much. Um, so they they actually debuted within a week of each other in 1987. So they were part of that same um, sort of graduating class from the dojo with Toshio Yamada and Manami Toyota. Um, you get um, Etsuko Mita forming the delightfully named Dream Orca with Toshio Yamada. Then you get Shimoda and Toyota forming um, the first iteration of the Tokyo Sweethearts, which is a delightful, delightful name. The, the second iteration of that would be Toyota and Yamada. So uh, this is, again, with the what Sarah was saying earlier about the fairly incestuous nature of uh, of tag teams at that time, like Yamada got transferred to Tokyo Sweethearts and then Shimoda and Mita ended up teaming up. Transfer deadline day. <laughs> Jim White outside the Tokyo, though. I, w- I would love to see... I, I really hope they do do this, but there's got to be... I think um, Yamada's probably really good for this. If we, you have like some sort of testimonial where they have like a 10-man... But it's like Yamada and all her former tag partners against <laughs> like someone else who has like five tag partners, and they just do like double team moves. I think that oh, would be, be a really incredible. good way to do a a, a match. John John, okay. John Cena teaming with the the four people he has won the WWE tag belts with while he was feuding with them. Mm-hmm. So the, <laughs> the name the, the name L- LCO doesn't actually attach itself to them until they've already been in the business a few years. So during this time, um, so you've got your Dream Orca and your Tokyo Sweethearts. You then have Mita and Shimoda having a brief run with the AJW Tag Championships between sort of 1999 uh, and 1991. Um, 
they each had various tag partners. They, this is this merry-go-round of everybody partnering with everyone. But, you know, as much as they ran around with others, they were clearly destined for each other. Oh, I, they, they, they are not the kind of women that you, you should be making oh sounds about. Absolutely not. Uh, when we discuss the match. So in 1992, um, Etsuka Mita, Mima Shimoda and uh, a, a young lass called Akira Hokuta go on an excursion to Mexico. Um, the three of them actually form LCO as a stable together there. Um, and by the time they come back from Mexico, they are very heelish. They're known for kind of using chairs that they've painted up in advance using the guardrails uh, and brawling. And it's not that they can't wrestle. I think we'll see that as we come up. <laughs> yeah. It's just that they've realised that sometimes you don't have to wrestle if you can beat somebody badly enough. Um they have a relatively slow rise from that point, and they're not um, they're not overly busy in 1993. Obviously, um, Akira Hokuto kind of peels off and goes on her own sort of stratospheric singles singles campaign, um, and the two of them are kind of left alone. They don't do a lot in 1993, but then in March 1994, they beat Mayumi Azaki and Kyuji Suzuki for the JWP Tag Championships. Now, this is huge. So they've gone from kind of being, you know respected enjoyed but they certainly didn't have many accomplishments to the name and now they're being put over the put put over the kind of the foreign promotion um to to bring back the belts um later that week they win the uwa belts from yumiko hotter and sakako inoue um so and they are defending these two different belts against jwp and llpw talent so they're actually moving around and they are having matches in ajw but at no point, at Big Egg in 1994, at no point have they actually won the WWWA tag belts um, from AJW. They don't win them until like 1997, 1998. And, and this is what's really interesting about that is that 1997 was when the company started losing an awful lot of talent, as we've sort of discussed before. And they left the company too. And as far as I can make out, I think they took the belts with them and they didn't really get their title runs until they were freelancers who were also working in other companies as well, which is just fascinating to me because I think it says something about the fact that they were obviously valuable to the company, but they knew that AJW was never going to be the be all and end all. Yeah, I mean, I mean, as freelancers in the latter half of the 90s, LCO became like one of the biggest acts in, in the Joshi scene, like sort of main event level. Yeah. And, uh, you know, having these incredibly violent uh fights in you know a number of versions and even having a few tag team cage matches which were very unusual at the time mm. so certainly they became a much bigger deal after this show yeah but i think at this point they are they might not be your top title holders in the promotion but they are obviously beloved they have these massive wacky sort of larger than life you know Wacky's probably not the right word because they're brutal and terrifying, like, like characters. They are, it seems like, as they're getting farmed out to different companies as well, other companies are, have got kind of comparable tag teams that are kind of being set up as being like, oh, this company's answer to LCO. And you start to see them sort of being sent out as company ambassadors to go and kind of take down almost all of the, almost all of the, the wannabes, hmm. I think. But they are... They are huge for the company, but again, some maybe some of those stars who are kind of beloved beyond, beloved and respected beyond where they actually are on the card. So you know, like Jungle Kiana, for example. Yes, indeed. Justice for Jungle Kiana. God bless. Um, and uh, so, what about the LLPW team? Like, um, 
What's what's their deal? Because like you said, you said that um, you know other promotions would have their anti two OCO to put against them. These sort of judging by what they do in this match, I would say they have that kind of vibe to them. They do. Um, it, it's quite interesting that they are, as with many sort of seemingly LLPW lifer talents, um, there isn't a huge amount out there on them. For uh, I'm just going to go back to the fact that Cage Match is woefully incomplete for this entire period. Um, and there's only bits and pieces you can really get on, on any of them. Um, Yasha Kurenai seems to have started in JWP and gone over with, with Kandori, but again, Cage Match doesn't start until 1993. I think Cage Match, maybe there's just one guy who watched loads of Dirty in 1993 and just started uploading stuff and <laughs> didn't bother going back before 1993, then. in fairness, is a fucking great year for Joshi. We've oh, got a DVD yeah. over there, and it's called The Best of Akira Hokuto in 1993, Volume 6. <laughs> Which tells you about the year she had. Do you know something when you say that about Cage Match? Uh, you, you may joke, but I absolutely guarantee that will be the exact reason why. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it will literally just be a guy who's uh, they're like, oh, I can't be fucking bothered putting in 18 years of fucking Joshi results. Let someone else do it. And then a, an absolute nerd who has no, no, nothing else to do is just like, yeah, I'm going to devote this. and just starts in 1993 and goes on. Because I remember I listened to an interview with the guy who ran Cage Match and he basically admitted it going, yep, all these results are from people who just really like a battle arts or arshin, and they just put up all these results for it. And like, yeah, it, it will absolutely just be they started from nineteen eighty three because they got a bunch of tapes, and that's why. I found a virtually complete repository of old JWA results, and like none of those are on Cage Match. I could easily do that, but I can't be fucked. So like... <laughs> well, Such as the curse of Cage Match. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So I will say, I think um, actually the. The, the record for Yasha Kurenai might start a little bit earlier, but certainly in 1993, that's when Nagashima's um, cage match profile starts. Um, but she's also someone who seems to have she seems to have worked in all the places that we know LLPW had working agreements with. So, uh, and I think the the overall impression I get from them is that they were. One way or another, they were kind of, they were lifers in LLPW. Both of them seem to have been sort of out of the business by the end of the 90s. And the one constant throughout all of their, their careers is LLPW. Their careers seem to be relatively short as well. Um, they were two thirds of the LLPW six woman tag champs at various points after this. So LLPW having a women's trios division i find quite interesting in and of itself yeah um, that's not I, I i think only i'm trying to think if only stardom is the the one who i'd say if any other company has a, a six woman belt is ice ribbon i don't think ice ribbon do they've got they've got I, a ice, shitload ice of other ribbon did. I, I don't maybe they do they've ice ribbon's got a lot of fucking belts um it does, to be fair. But, uh, yeah it's, it's quite unusual for them to for there to be a trio's um uh, trio's title in Joshi. I mean, a lot of the uh, a lot of the promotions nowadays don't have as many as six wrestlers contracted to them. So mm. there's a ten man tag belt in DDT now, and the belts are all uh, each belt is covered coloured a colour of a Power Ranger. I mean, as far as these two go, I think this is the sort of paucity that's of stuff that's out there about them is kind of kind of just prove our point about um, the fact that LLPW didn't create many stars aside from Kandori, who is someone mm-hmm. that I think most people with even a passing interest in 90s Joshi will have heard of. Yeah. Um, I would like to ask, actually, so 
listeners, the great the great community of wrestling fans, if you happen to know anything about Michiko Nagashima or Yashikura Nai and you can fill in some of these gaps, tell us, tweet at us or something like that and just give us the information and we will we'll put it out on a future episode or something yeah. or it will help us kind of fill the record a little bit. But there really isn't that much out there on them apart from the fact that you know you see them in this match and it's quite clear that they are intended to be an answer to Las Cachorras Orientales yeah I mean um the uh I mean getting into getting into the uh the match there is uh some uh excellent looks being served um uh, this is even before we get into the entrances which are also very good in their in their own right but LCO are spotted backstage doing their interview with some uh, excellent kimonos being worn. A big part of uh, LCO's uh, general aesthetic was the fact that they're two very attractive women who uh, are incredibly nasty in the way that they fight. There's this real real divergence between their outward appearance and what they're actually about in terms of their wrestling style. Um, The LLPW um, duo... uh, Really, both women a few words. They don't t- really say much in the um, in the promo. They've got these cool blue coats on. Actually, that's one thing I did like about this is that uh, both of the teams have matching gear or like gear that is very close to matching. And that's not really something you get very often in uh, in well, not just Joshi, but just um, Japanese wrestling in general. Certainly not in this period. No, probably because I guess traditionally there hasn't been a tag division as such like the the your main tag teams uh, as as you've as you've heard from you've had teams like Toshio Yamada and Minami Toyota Yumiko Hotta and Takako Inoue and so on your main tag teams are also like your main singles people so i guess you wouldn't there's not a tag division as such but i appreciated that both teams here came out in matching gear like LPW got uh, got these awesome clothes uh clothes what the fuck am i talking about is that uh, is that glate um uh <laughs> going in just putting random l's uh all over damn you katayashi so um so Kerr and i uh the blonde one in the lpw uh, team comes out with a sword that i mean that's very cool but is absolutely blasted out of the park by the uh, by the lco entrance well, oh, this is the greatest entrance of all time. So good. Absolutely love this. I would big like Hen party energy to this. <laughs> oh, big, so big, big Hen wrestling universe. They have a dance troupe. They come out. They issue their own streamers whilst they are being whilst they are being carried on the shoulders of an array of I, muscular I, men I, in vests. I like how one of the it kind of looks like a. Uh, Spider-Man's web. I like how I can't remember if it's Mita or Shimoda, but one of them, like she shoots out the uh, the whatever it is, silly string or whatever, and it doesn't it doesn't really go far enough, and it just lands on the shoulder of the fellow who's carrying her, and then she kind of brushes it off with her hand. Dance troupe are really impressive as well. Like they give these guys, these guys get a far more elaborate entrance than honestly most of the other people on the show. I think it's probably this will be the entrance that involves the most people on balance because by the time you've got you you've got your dancers and then you've got your carriers and, and all of that like yeah. and it's really it's we'll, such we'll, a- we'll, we'll, we'll have to count the number of mo- motorbikes that Alundra Blaze turned up with uh, see true. uh episode nine for that mm-hmm. I, I would like at this juncture to ask, ask david where lco stand in his uh pre-established queen's serving looks league table well oh god right i mean like I, I, I love him um, I, I, I love um oily shirtless men um and carrying me places in sedan chairs so um obviously very high um am I in there I'm not in mute am I no you're just not listening um <laughs> <laughs> 
Would um, that I could not listen, David. Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, I, I, yeah, it's I, it's a great energy. Um, I'm. I mean, th- this is like. This is the old Liverpool Man City sort of thing where you know where Liverpool came second despite having the, the sort of second greatest points total in the history of the Premier League. In any other season, they'd have won the league at a canter. It's, it's very much that energy with these entrances at Big because this is astounding. This, I mean, at the very least, is getting into Europe, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's uh... neither of them sort of assailing the heights of Suzuki Minami or Bison Kimura yet. They're doing an Everton at the moment. They're top of the table for a wee while, and then it kind of they kind of drift off as like you know the the form. Everyone picks up their form, but they'll still comfortably qualify for Europe and get that that big bonus payment. I mean, I'm glad, I'm glad I'm glad we're on, we've only got a one week delay between recording and uh, releasing this episode. Considering if we did our usual trick of waiting months, Everton would have inevitably tumbled down to thirteenth or something, <laughs> as, as they usually do. <laughs> So um, yeah, I also loved like Shimoda is holding her title aloft in a very regal manner. This is one of only three title matches on the uh, on this incredibly massive ten hour show, which is quite a low number when you uh, when you think about it. So I, and I the man sleeves are on well. the line as well. Yeah, <laughs> is it like is it like the the, the Godfather and uh, and the hose being on the line? Is it like the sort of gender swap version of that? It, I I what I love about it is like you know uh, bad luck Farley and Prince Devitt would do that sort of uh, entrance. I I love it's yeah. basically a step up from that where they've got like four oily <laughs> shirtless men each. Could you imagine Absolutely. having four oily shirtless bad luck Farleys carrying you to the <laughs> ring, God? This is this is absolute. This, these are power moves. This is uh, this is absolutely women who are coming out here to be like, we appreciate that you're probably here for Chigusa Nagoya. We appreciate you're probably here for the for the V Top tournament or whatever. But we want you to remember that we are the baddest bitches in the building. Yeah, yeah. And it's, and it's quite interesting how each team presents itself as uh, as you know a big deal in kind of different ways. Like the LLPW team come out sort of. Almost scampering down to the ring with their with their cloaks and their swords, uh, kind of looking like like uh, you know samurai fighters. Whereas samurai fighters across with Slipknot, you know <laughs> those boiler suits aren't actually you know it, it's very no, they, much... those would not be standard issue for in the Tokugawa Shogunate, for instance. Tokugawa Iyasu, I loved when he he defeated the the he defeated the emperor by hitting him with a bin. Beautiful stuff. Um, so uh, the uh, so the match anyway um, they they get right into it. There's a lot of um, it's more like victory rolls and knee bars than twatting the fuckity out of each other, which is what uh, was happening in the previous one. Um, however, Etsko Mita soon gets into it by uh, slapping Nagashima on the bonds from the apron, which is a one wonderful bitch move. I absolutely love it. And uh, then she comes in with these horrible fucking hair mares. Um, just like absolutely chucking her across the ring, lots of um, lots of feet in the face by Elcio. They absolutely love that. And um, Shimoda does the first random power driver of the match um, at a very early stage, um, and then distracts the ref as Mita chokes Nagashima in the corner. So already you're getting this instance in which uh, the Elcio uh, dynamic of look looks nice but plays nasty. Like they they get to it uh, instantly with all of the dirty heel tactics. That was what they really became known for. Um, this is peak peak Burnley shit right here. It really um, is. 
<laughs> this is proper, you know, mark a man with the back of your elbow levels of just being shitheads and going in studs up to every tackle, regardless of the intensity of the game. It's absolutely, it's I absolutely love it. fantastic. Yeah. A lot of this really gave me kind of Oedo Tai kind of vibes as well. And I think definitely in, in the form in which it currently exists, I think there is no Oedo Tai without LCO. No, absolutely. And yeah, uh, Rossi Agawa does uh, very consciously pattern uh, stardom after 90s AJW, mm. which he was involved in. So uh, I, I, I certainly I certainly think that makes sense in terms of like, I think not not just Oedo Tai, but you know, a lot of um, Japanese Joshi heel factions um, have, have a, a lot of influence from what LCO were doing. Because I, I think the... the, the they're different from, uh, you know, Matsumoto and Borna Kano and all of the crew would have been in the 80s. It's less of a punk aesthetic and it's something more glamorous about it, but they're still using a lot of the same sort of heel tactics. It's more the case of, like, um, Borna Kano and stuff like that, they're, they, they're, their badness is kind of informed by their aesthetic, but you know that at heart they, they probably actually would... They, 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 they would help their friends and stuff like that. You generally, if you got to know them and you're friends with them and you got in with their gang, you know, they would actually be all right. Whereas these two just seem like general out-and-out arseholes. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's um, this is really good where Kerr I tries to make a hot tag and just gets booted in the face. <laughs> like, it's um, the, 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 the casual brutality of the previous match we talked about is also very much, uh, very much in ev- evidence here. Like it's um, also, I would would say that uh, Shimoda does uh, Giant Barber's falling neckbreaker drops. Drop, so I'm going to add her to the um, list of wrestlers who are officially the lads approved. It's things like you know, you go for a hot tag and then you get roundly kicked in the face. Like this is, I don't think it's unfair to say that this is this is a match about LCO dominating. It's not that it's not that the the LLPW duo are jobbers or anything i think they are you know but they they also they don't really get that much offense in i mean there's a few things like there's an assisted pile driver that they do that looks really good um but nobody takes pile drivers seriously in joshi and it basically never leads to anything so it looks good but they can't really do much with it this is not one of those it doesn't follow that traditional sort of tag match psychology of what you might expect in a WWE match where, you know, you have a face in peril and then you have a hot tag and things like that. That's not what this is for at all. Um, but I really enjoyed it for all, for, for all of that. Well, speak, speaking uh, speaking to our, uh, our our friend Jose, who uh, knows his Joshi quite a lot and was uh, was watching in the 90s, um, uh, he did say that like later later in the nineties when there were a main event act, Osio had somewhat of a reputation for not exactly giving their opponents much offense. Oh really? So uh, I guess that kind of ties into uh, ties and yeah yeah. But apparently they could be quite uh, uh, selfish is maybe too sort of harsh a term, but they could be quite domineering in terms of the amount of offense they doled out in matches as opposed to what their opponents allowed. Having said that, I guess that does tie in with their general their general vibe you can't really be a sort of brutal sadistic tag team if you're if you're you know it's the matches are all booked kind of 50 50 i would politely refer to that as doing a kandori 
Uh, well, yes, yeah. but we did we did have this uh, we did have this discussion um, earlier about is this a quid pro quo for Kandori going over on Yamada in the previous match? She's offered up uh, some warm bodies to uh, to job to uh, an AJW team. I I think that's exactly what happened here. I don't think any of them are above a little bit of backstage sort of finagling to I, get I to, to get the result so. that they want. It's also interesting what you said about the power drivers as well, like sort of. Um, uh, um, just, just something to note is that um, uh, the pile driver was uh, banned in Mexico at the time. It's, it was a big spot where you'd had to distract the ref to do a pile driver, and if you did a pile driver and the ref spotted it, you would be disqualified. And it's really interesting that like, that's the absolute opposite from what AJW was at the time, where like all the matches had sixteen pile drivers, and like yeah, most of them, yeah. most of them didn't even get a two count. So um, the the other interesting dynamic I felt in the early stage of the match is that. Um, Nagashima doing things like uh, a back scratch and uh, just before Shimoda stomps on her toe in recompense, which is, again, hilariously brutal. But um, it seems like Nagashima and Ko and I um, have realised they need to fight dirty as well. Uh, so they're sinking to OCO's level. And that's something I, I quite like in terms of um, fi- fighting fire with fire. And, like, you know, I, I, I guess um, I wouldn't have guessed that, and I, I could be wrong because I haven't seen much of their stuff, but um, that Kobanai and Nagashima would not be using these tactics to anything like the same degree in uh, their home promotion. But when you come to AJW, you kind of, mm. and certainly when you're wrestling at LCO, you kind of have to. Yeah. I Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, they have some really arrogant pins as well, do LCO. So they do things like, like they, they do the knee on the neck, they do the sitting on the chest, and they scream like they, they scream like anybody's business, you know, all, all the way through this as well. They are very much in that kind of obnoxious style of we're better than you and we know it. Yeah, the, there was one point at which we got possibly the greatest uh, cover ever because we got the the simultaneous uh, cocky pin uh, with the foot on the chest and the Joshi Bridge out of it. Oh, I loved that. I absolutely loved it, yeah. and you and you do not have to Joshi Bridge out of um, out of the cocky pin because like it is just a foot. Like even the, you know, the great Carly special, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you can't bend it the way. Um, the, the the thing I liked about um, uh, Yashiko and I in this is that uh, she's not a big woman, but she really likes her choke slams. Like she's always fucking doing choke slams, whether it be like just just a regular choke slam, choke slam off the top rope, which doesn't really look very good, but um, she does it anyway. Um, she's probably the smallest woman I, uh, I have ever seen do choke slam spam. Because if you think about the chokeslam, you're thinking like, our oh, Kane, The Undertaker, uh, Vader, you know, uh, The Big Show, people people like that. You don't necessarily expect someone colonized size to be throwing them out. And yet she does. And uh, I think that's to be to be applauded. Absolutely. Yeah, it's I love I love seeing I love a chokeslam regardless of who does it. It's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. The um, uh, the other thing that we get in this match is the use of the kendo stick as a weapon. And uh, I, I, I absolutely adored this. Both, both teams have come tooled up uh, for this, and uh, I, yeah, I, I absolutely, absolutely love this. Um, uh, and uh, again, this is the, the sense of uh, LCO, uh, you know, dominating proceedings in that Kuran I gets the stick, and uh, she kind of goes wild a little bit with it, but not that much. Um, so she kind of gets cut off before she can start wailing on LCO with the weapon. Which I thought was qu- I thought was quite interesting. After which, Mita Gorilla presses one of the LLPW team onto a teammate uh, on the outside, and then does this uh, wonderful no hand springboard dive, the kind that Minami Toyota would uh, do. And Mita's quite tall; she's like five foot eight, 
so she's got the she's got the vertical leap to be able to to be able to do that. Like I think that's some uh, I think that's some really good shit. Um, there's also a bit later in the match in which um, uh, the cane gets thrown and then Shimoda intercepts it, a la the Rock catching the Big Boss Band's nightstick at Survivor Series '98. It has the feel of an absolute garbage brawl where things are constantly sort of on the verge of going too far. But at the same time, it's actually being quite technically well wrestled. Like they're like, you know, it's it interposes these really quite nasty sort of hair pulls and all of that with actual good wrestling moves as well. But it has such a sense of pace, uh, such a a sort of a a pace and a and a a genuine anger and a kind of violence to it. Where I do, it's not that they. It's not that they hate each other in the way that Yamada and Kandori did, but it is very much a we are not here to we are not here to be honourable. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. Like the um, there's some interesting innovative offence as well. Like Nagashima, and I don't know how she does this, but she somehow manages to do an avalanche northern light suplex. Now you wouldn't think this would be would be possible, but like when Chris Wolf managed to tornado DDT two women at the same time, despite the fact that should be physically impossible, somehow she did it. Yes. Like it's um it's really, really good. The tandem offense is uh is is good from the LLPW team. Like the uh, uh simultaneous top rope back sent ons for a two count late in the match. They also steal LCO's tag finisher at uh, at one point, which uh, mm. it's a it's a kind of doomsday device type thing, isn't it? Like yeah, it's 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 quite odd, but I absolutely love people stealing their opponent's finishers. It's... Oh, God, yeah. You've built up two finishes. You press L1 and L2, and suddenly Andre the Giant is doing the 6 one We've all seen it. Yeah. <laughs> so, what, what's your highlight of this match, David? Oh, I really liked the spot where they get their comeuppance where they get the kendo stick at the end and just absolutely wail on them with it. Yeah, that's that. Uh, that's right. Like, the crowd also react to it, and it's it's a really good spot, and it's really well good use of the kendo sticks mainly because kendo sticks in WWE are so incredibly played out and are oh yeah the most groan inducing weapon anytime they're pulled out of the apron when you're watching a WWE show, um and it was just kind of nice to see that actually being used in an effective manner where it was kind of you know someone getting the taste of their own medicine it was it was quite wonderful. Um, I also really liked. I was just a big fan of the shithousery of just cut cutting the ring in half, keep it a you know um, isolating someone, and because uh, the, the, there was a couple of sections where they did that, and I really enjoyed it, and I thought it was just good tag team mechanics there that you don't you, you don't really see that much anymore. I know that we have like the revival and stuff like that to do it, but like. It, it was done, it, this was sort of a very good indication of it that I, I really quite enjoyed. It's not something you see very much in AJW at the time, to be fair. Like, um, Certainly not. Very, very much like the uh, the house style, if you can if you can uh, term such a thing, would be like, you know, relatively frequent tags, high octane offense, and not really like extended points in which there is like one person being beaten down and isolated um so i thought that was something that was quite different the kendo stick point is interesting like i think you're absolutely right about this stuff being played out but also i think there's something to be said for a a kind of minimalism in terms of the weapons that are being used because um you know how like uh money in the bank matches now in dulului and everyone is building sort of mad ladder castles out of like half a dozen ladders (laughs) 
and the like really weird um contraptions that always goes wrong because there's so many moving parts and if someone takes a bump in slightly the wrong place then the whole thing and it's always jeff hardy that is the one that has to claim it absolutely he's been doing it for 20 years and but like it's if you go back and look at some of the early ladder matches um famously the uh the razor ramon um sean michaels one which is the first ladder match in uh wwf they have one ladder yeah yeah in the same way that I think I certainly Sarah will be of this mind, but um, what is uh, what is gives you more tension? Is it the you know Big Japan or Freedom's death matches where literally the ropes are covered with light tubes and there's like two hundred light tubes and people are going to light tubes the whole fucking time, oh, or uh, light tubes for God's sake, or a match like um, Akito had with uh, Asuka this year and uh, earlier with Junkasai where there is one light tube and if you get slammed on it you lose. They're the best. They are the best light tube death matches. Exactly. I, I don't think there's any contests. Yeah. Now, now, yeah, you know, like um, now th- there are exceptions to the rule. I remember a uh, uh, Jamie Hater versus uh, Little Miss Roxy match in which uh, one kendo stick was countered by ten kendo sticks tied together. <laughs> um, so that was that's very much uh, Mo at the NRA meeting the Simpsons saying that's that's how you can turn one gun into five guns. <laughs> Um, but for the most part, I think, like, yeah, have the kendo stick. You come in with a kendo stick, um, it gets used as a weapon. You, you don't have, like, multiple kendo sticks under the ring and people chucking your kendo sticks and uh, all the rest of it. I think that's something to be enjoyed about this match. The fact that uh, a little bit like a capture the flag contest, you know, whoever has possession of the kendo stick at any one moment in this match kind of really does turn the tide in terms of the offence. I think it puts over as well that sort of kendo sticks probably really hurt quite a lot. Oh, I like bet quite they bad. But if you watch WWE and you watch it, it's the the go to where everyone has a kendo stick and everyone in the, on the roster has at some point been hit by a kendo stick to the point where well, a fucking hornswoggle can take kendo stick shots. It's probably not that bad, and they kind of treat it that way where it's just like it, it doesn't. I, I don't think it has the same effect. You have it obviously every so often, but it's always just the go-to, really. oh god, a kendo stick, where it loses its sort of importance. Yeah, it also like breaks the logic of like the weapons under the ring being things that you would have under there. Like there's a it really vital for the construction of the ring. Yeah, 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 yeah like chairs and tables and ladders you need, and that's why and they're there. Bins, and bins, down. yeah, because you got to clean up after yourself, especially if you're being hygienic in the COVID age. And but and like, so they just need somewhere to shit in once. Uh, <laughs> it's got a bad time. It's bad time. But like, why? Why would there be a kendo stick under the ring? Like Hikaru Shida comes out with a kendo stick. Fair play, she did kendo before uh, getting into wrestling. I do not buy that. For example, Braun Strowman is a fucking kendo master and knows how to swing a stick. I think they use it a lot because it's like. I'm sure it hurts, but like it's relatively safe in other ways, and it's not people getting blammed in the head with an unprotected chair shot. Yeah. And they um, bought a job lot of a hundred thousand kendo sticks like four years ago, and they can't get rid of it. that and eighty shark cages, just, and they'll just, just try to rid of them all. Kevin Dunn spent too much on Groupon. I mean, you're saying that. I just think they had a hell of a steal on storage on us. <laughs> I'd like to buy another kendo stick, please, Mister Dunn. I think you've had enough. I'll tell you what I've had enough. <laughs> Big, big Fabergé egg wrestling universe. 
So uh, the end. This match builds to a very hot end. There's uh, DDTs and uh, choke slams. Yashikura and I getting her shit in uh, all over the place. Then uh, Nagashima misses a sent on, and Shimoda hits this really lovely German suplex, followed by Mita uh, getting the win with uh, the Death Valley bomb, which uh, you may also know as a Death Valley driver. That is a move she invented. So that's. Uh, of Japanese women invented all your favourite wrestling moves. I present Etsuko Mita with a Death Valley bomb. And it gets the win. It's the first one, I think it's the first one she attempts in the match as well, but uh, mm. the Death Valley bomb has somewhat been uh, devalued in terms of its power level like, um, uh, you know, some of those uh, Mako Satsumura Ayaka Hamada matches that were happening in Sendai like a few years ago which I wasn't a, a huge fan of and I think it's because there was about seven Death Valley bombs in every every single every single match. Um, it's definitely not the, the guaranteed match ender that it used to be but you know the figure four leg lock was going yeah like john cena versus the nexus energy of just yeah. constantly spamming the the aas it's so long that john cena's not been there i totally forgot what his finisher is called that's how long it's been since i've seen him actually do the AA. but yeah like it's a big john cena versus the nexus energy god who would have thought that in like 2011 that wrestling fans would be fucking begging for john cena to come back like he he voiced the the intro on Night of Champions and yes, everyone's like John Cena and they're like that's probably that and the shitty Firefly Funhouse are gonna be the only times you see John Cena this year and that's but, it. To be honest, considering the shite WWE is serving up, he is very much uh, better off out of that. I just yes. want to say that I enjoyed the hell out of that WrestleMania match. It was absolutely. Oh, I cannot. Everyone was... did. It was absolutely batshit. It was a trash fire, and I loved it. Please refer to the Puri Puri podcast um, WrestleMania review from this year if you want to hear David's thoughts, because we do not currently have a spare 20 minutes. Um, um, uh, After after the match, um, LCO, um, somewhat surprisingly, politely accept their trophies and certificates and a gigantic sign presented by the sponsor. Um, I I assume the sign was advertising their company. I couldn't read it because it was in Japanese. But... um, Quite funny to see them um, acting in this way when Yamada and Kandori after the last match were very much intent on gouging each other's eyes out and did not particularly care that the bell had rung. So, uh... Who do you think kept the sign? Etsuka, Rita, or Mima Shimoda? Who... You like on uh, Bullseye where they had to split a fitted kitchen between them? <laughs> Are you going like... to sink? I'll get the drainer. I like to imagine that they would have split it in two and they'd have done that by, like, breaking it over the referee's head or something. <laughs> what do you think was happening backstage that night? In the, in the locker room, they were competing because by that point, Bull Nakano's had a chance to fix her hair and at that point, it makes a perfect blade. <laughs> so you use that as kind of like the... the, the like the, the sharp bit on some cling film or something like that, and you just break things over it. Can, can you imagine the locker room after this show being just absolutely packed to the rafters with trophies and big signs and giant checks? It looked like fucking Scrooge McDuck's vault. I I would love... I wonder how many people on this show who got a trophy, or in general from like Dreamtime, some of that kept them, and how many of them now have husbands. Like, you need to clear the shit out of the back room. Like, <laughs> Our kid sleeps in the, in a uh, a cupboard because of you. Because you have to have your big egg trophies out. Imagine that like, being like um, I, I think Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone would have been in, well, it would have improved if it wasn't written by a transphobe as well. But um, <laughs> it would have uh, it would have been improved if the reason Harry had to sleep in the cupboard under the stairs because like Uncle Vernon has filled the spare bedroom up with amateur wrestling trophies. 
Uncle Vernon could, could grapple. I'm, I'm telling you right now. Uncle Vernon was a big guy. He could fucking handle himself. He could block a fucking German like no one's business. Look, all I'm saying is that if you want to try and tell one of Etzko Mita or Mima Shimoda that they've got to clean up their trophies, good fucking luck, because I'm not having that conversation with them. <laughs> it's just Etzko Mita just going in there saying no post on Sundays. <laughs> You would keep it though, wouldn't you? You yeah, absolutely of course would. You would. We've talked on the earlier episode, like how much would you pay for like a genuine <laughs> like big egg wrestling universe trophy? Of course you'd keep it, surely. Yeah. Yeah, like uh, who was it? Was it? Um, I'm trying to think who it was. The, oh, it, was it was Steve Bull, uh, the Wolves ace, who he got like 13 uh, balls from scoring hat tricks, and he just gave them all to his pals. And I wonder if like Joshi people done that. Just like their pal, like they go to the pub with or something on the sly when they're not telling the, the promoters. It depends um, if you're if you're a Rossi Agawa only owned one trophy and just uses it for every championship match, truth or not. Like as we discussed on a previous episode, or like I wouldn't pay for an uh, for a big egg wrestling universe trophy because I would not necessarily have it in my house. But if I had won it the old-fashioned way, you would prize it out of my cold, dead fingers. Like, I would be keeping that for the rest of my life, no questions asked. Honestly, my Farhill Cup winner's medal, like, I, I know it means absolutely nothing to anybody, but, like, I, I, yeah, that's, that's, going in, that's going in the coffin. Yeah, you, you absolutely. Just buried with your gold like a dead pharaoh. Please refer to me by my correct name, Ramesses the first. Just like, all hail. Just Joshi jo- 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 wrestlers getting buried and then all their still living trainees getting thrown in. <laughs> just that picture of Smithers going, oh! <laughs> and the casket. <laughs> so, I mean, the good news is we do already have a te- we do already have a template for what happens when when, when they die because there's a there, there's someone known as the mummy on this show. There very much is, yes. Uh, we will get to the mummy. I have fallen in love with the idea that all AGW wrestlers will be buried in a pharaoh's tomb full of treasures that they've won at, like, Corican. Um, they call it the Valley of the Queens. <laughs> that's, that's what that's what Diff Radiaki is now. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just the graveyard. <laughs> An abandoned lot for AGW wrestlers to rest in peace when they pass with all their uh, trophies from six-man... I, I, I find it very apt that pro wrestling knows a home arena would become a graveyard. <laughs> It'd be more atmospheric. Um... <laughs> yes, so uh, I believe that brings us to the end of the uh, of the episode. Thank you for uh, being with us. In episode six, we will move on to uh, what is a um, pretty big part of AJW, as we have talked about um when we've talked about the Kush Gowers, the Beauty Pair, etc., 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 and that is the idol wrestlers and sort of the idol aesthetic. Mm. So we're going to talk about that in uh, in episode six. The Horn Boys have logged into the chat. Not <laughs> <laughs> more broadly as well. I think it's about the people's different ideas of what idols can and should be, and and more broadly about using mainstream media and mainstream appeal to bring people into to bring people into sort of professional wrestling yeah absolutely well. and that and that's always been a part of it and uh you know we're, we're going to devote an episode to uh that and after that we'll move on to the shoot fights and it's going to be a great time for everyone so um before we leave you we shall do some plugs so sarah would you like to begin yeah man so 
Um, my general feeling about these matches is inject this shit directly into my veins. So when I write, so when I write the show notes for this, um, so if you're listening to this and you haven't already seen it in in the show notes, um, please do follow the link in the episode description um, and, and get uh, and have a look at those because I will be including some recommendations for some sort of future LCO matches and other Toshio Yamada matches that you might really enjoy. Um, generally, check out the show notes as, as a rule because I think they're generally wherever. Wherever we make a sort of reference that maybe not everybody will get, I always try and provide some context for it in there. Um, so in, in <laughs> looking at the... Oxford World Classics, David Forrest Patter, just like fifty pages of end notes explaining it all. So definitely, have have a look at the show notes. Um, I'd also just like to. I plug a lot of the same things all the time, right? So you you know that you know that I wrote an essay in the anthology Women Love Wrestling, which Mick Actual Foley has praised in public, and which is writing by and about women in wrestling. Um, you can find that on Amazon. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. Um, you also know about um, a lot of the other things that we're doing. But one thing that I would like to plug is um, a friend of all of us on the podcast, um, going by the name of L J Gray, has written an essay for a book called So Hormonal which is um, published by an independent publisher called Monstrous Regiment um, and it's a collection of essays um, by people who want to talk about hormones uh, and the way that they affect people's lives in different ways how they can affect ideas of gender and sexuality and access to really important resources um, and it's it's a really it's a really fantastic just sort of combination of insights into the lives of others and specifically into areas of you know things that many people live with every day and that we don't always talk about as a society that we're not great at so um i would definitely check out that i will include a link to that in the show notes as well so so hormonal is the name and then check out our friend um lj who wrote about that who wrote an essay for this book um they are at illustrated law on twitter as well so i will include a link to to all of that absolutely i would totally agree with um Sarah's, uh, recommendation there um, I've known LJ for many, many years, and they are one of the most articulate and funny people that I know. So I absolutely know that any sort of writing that they do is going to be fantastic and absolutely worth your time to read. So I would definitely suggest you go out your way to follow them and read them as well. Uh, just they're a fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I've uh, whenever you two get together, like my my sides are just in absolute pieces just that basically it's all the the stories about the glasgow goth scene from like 15 years ago i think the the thing that absolutely did me in um was uh when we were talking about it before was lj just casually mentioning someone who was known as big nazi mo like it was just the the most normal thing, thing who well. who ended up who ended up like joining a commune um af- afterwards and i was just like no wait hang on no backtrack backtrack you you can't just throw out that name and like <laughs> what's the story here come on now but yeah yeah i would i would say like absolutely really worth a follow just an absolutely uh, fantastic person yeah i should reiterate that big nazi mo um eventually did end up joining antifa so you know happy ending for us all <laughs> yes. so you know we we, we we have our yeah we have our wayward times you know um, I was into um, not real big fish for a while, so you know, <laughs> parallels. 
the uh, uh, fuck's sake. So, um, you, George. I'm not gonna lie. I absolutely dig you. Yeah, no, I, 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 I fully, uh, you know, I fully expected at uh, this point I'm a very diggable person. So um, that sounded very wrong, David. What you got to plug? Um, I uh, run a podcast about Partick Thistle. We're kind of gearing up now because now that we are all incredibly depressed because, hey guys, we were going to win League One at a canter. And um, it turns out we're not. And it turns out it's much, much harder than it is. Uh, we all thought it would be. So we're back to weekly episodes. Um, we are very much ramping up because we're going to weekly episodes. We're, we're taking a, a couple of liberties in terms of making it a bit more out there in terms of just presentation so for example next week for halloween uh, we're doing a spooky cookie edition where we talk about the top 10 thistle horror shows <laughs> i.e we all pick three games that are all utterly, utterly horrific to watch greetings and boils and ghouls i might literally steal that next week I'm not going <laughs> to lie. And, and so for example this week as well um, I stole the come down with me enjoy the money Jane speech but changed the word Jane to Clyde and money to three points at every single reference um, to start the episode so yeah it's just kind of silly stuff like that uh, just kind of broadening it out and um, testing my editing chops um, but yeah um, I, I, we are called uh, Drawlers or Draw we're on Twitter at Drawlers or Draw find us in SoundCloud and various other things and uh, Apple, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all that. Um, it's it's a good laugh and if you have even a tangential um, like interest in Scottish football, you, you'll generally enjoy it. We're not the worst and usually it involves Man Pete um, uh, recording live from a gaff that he's been at as in like literally last week we, we, he started, we started recording and a guy behind him started laughing because he's like, he's doing a podcast in my house. Why is he doing a podcast in my house? <laughs> and we had to tell him they had to leave the room or mute um, himself or something because he couldn't just have a stoned man in the background laughing. <laughs> On the, the contrary, I think that would have been great. <laughs> but yeah, so just, yeah, just stuff like that is uh, nonsense. But it's, it's good fun and we do enjoy it. And it, it's, it's, the only thing, it's the thing that's keeping us together in terms of, these are people that I only ever see at the football. I don't live in Glasgow, so I don't ever see them. And this has been a thing that's kept us going where we are uh, very much still friends and more friends because of it, because we kind of bounce stuff off of each other and do the collaborating things like that. And it's really brought us together as friends. It's really good. And as well as that, we're doing the 12 Days of Alan Archibald where we review a match each day at Christmas about Alan Archibald because we can't sing the song. No, I, I, I'd, I'd echo that if, you, if you're into football. They're guys who are very passionate about their subject. There's enough coverage of Scottish football that focuses on uh, Rangers and Celtic. It's about 90% of it. So it's nice to hear these lads who are uh, uh, fans of one of the smaller teams and who clearly very much care about it. David was recently extensively quoted in a BBC Sport article about Partick Thistle's only ever European trip more than 25 years ago. They did a rather excellent episode on that I, where they sort of did an oval history of it with people who had, uh, who had been there um i would really recommend uh, checking that out so um as far as what i've got to plug firstly at Puro podcast uh, is our twitter account for the um not just uh 
we're, we're doing the big egg podcasting universe from that account as well but also the main Puri Puri podcast which is myself David and our friend Daniel doing historical uh, Japanese wrestling storylines and increasingly recently uh, all sorts of wacky shit uh, involving a rather fiendish Puro quiz uh, I, I bang on about Ricky Dozan uh, speaking of Ricky Dozan I've got a novel that you can buy it's called The Rise and Fall of Ricky Dozan nice easy title to remember it is about the birth of professional wrestling in Japan in the late 50s and early 60s and about how the aforementioned Ricky Dozan, who was the big wrestling star at the time, became an incredibly wealthy and powerful man uh, by staging these wrestling shows in which he would defeat the big evil Americans, which, as you can imagine, at the time with Japan having just lost the Second World War and whatnot, was something that people very much wanted to pay money to see. It also features... Uh, cameos from uh, a lot of the famous American wrestlers of the day. If you have heard of uh, names like Luthez, Classy Freddy, Blasty, and The Destroyer, they are all there in uh, Glorious Technicolor, or, or Black and White, as it would have been at the time. Um, uh, people, people seem to like it. I remember uh, I spent about four years working on this novel, and I remember Sarah uh, saying, oh, thank God it's good, um, which is, <laughs> it would have been really dispiriting if I had spent four years working on the novel. It turned out to be unreadable shite. Um, <laughs> What I was thinking about is that, you know, it, in many ways it would be it, it would be harder for me because then, like, what if what if I read it and then I had to lie to you for the rest of my life, <laughs> telling you that it was good when it wasn't? That's what I was scared of. Yeah, that's true. But like, yeah, people seem to like it. You don't have to know uh, anything about wrestling to understand it. Uh, you certainly don't have to know anything about Japanese wrestling in the 1950s to understand it. Uh, I've written it so that uh, if you literally know nothing about the subject, all the stuff is explained for you. If you are a wrestling fan, as I predict you probably are if you're listening to this podcast um there's some nice little easter eggs for uh, for you as well uh, that you can uh, spot and like the the, the unwashed masses won't have uh, access to understanding so you can feel very nice and superior about yourselves um it is available for two pounds 49 for a uh, kindle version uh you can buy it on amazon and uh, it's also available uh 14.99 for a print-on-demand uh, paperback edition, which is uh, very nice quality. It's printed in Poland and shipped out to you in uh, a number of days. Um, I think it's uh, it's a good amount of reading for that uh, amount of money as well. It's about 750 odd pages, so for, for 15 quid, that is a uh, certainly a decent amount of reading. It will keep you occupied in the uh, the long COVID-ridden months, which we have all got to look forward to. Um, you can also find our uh, writings on. I maintain the double foot stomp is silly.com. Uh, so when Sarah mentioned about the uh, the show notes for the episodes, that's where you'll be able to find those, as well as a number of articles written by ourselves and our collaborators around various uh, aspects of wrestling, some of it Japanese, some of it not. I recently wrote a bit about um, how uh, if G Gato Move had a football team, now that they have 11 members on the roster, what positions would they play and what formation would they use and so on. That was uh, that was a lot of fun. Sarah has recently written an article on why the WWE Hall of Fame is... Uh, it tells us more about wrestling than Dave Meltzer's Hall of Fame. So if you want to see exactly what would uh, what would prompt such a such an argument, then uh, do do check that out. Yeah, there's some there's some stuff to suit all tastes on there, and uh, you know all manners of interest in wrestling. So do check that out. Okay, thank I've you. Got very... one, uh, oh, go on. One wee quick plug that I'll put in. Um, just uh, just I totally forgot about it. Um, I I don't uh, people who listen to this podcast may be aware. Um, the former Burning Spirits podcast was an old Puro podcast. It's sort of one of the inspirations for this podcast, certainly for myself, in terms of 
they were all the into hard, hardcore punk and stuff like that, and they done lots of stuff, but they were more of a current podcast. They don't do anything anymore, but they do still have an active Twitter account, which seems to be waging an hourly war against Burger King, because I just, well, in, the, in the process of recording this, I noticed that they posted something at Burger King, and it was uh, it, the quote was, all will kneel before at Burger King, an endless cavalcade of sorrow and disappointment. And I was like, that's a bit strange. Why is, why is he tweeting about Burger King? Maybe there's some context on his profile. And it turns out that for the last 44 days, he's been posting nearly daily uh, with uh, posts such as at Burger King is a failure of humanity, um, at Burger King vomit emoji, um, cool quote from John Lennon on his famous song Imagine, Oi wankers, the song Imagine is about Burger King going out of business. They are shit, mate. They take the piss. Pretty cool stuff. Um, yeah, so yeah, shit. yeah I love Burger King all hail the king it's the only monarch that I subscribe to apart from King Crimson and King Diamond but <laughs> um, the three kings but um, as immortalised in that George Clooney film but um, yes at underscore burning spirits to watch his continuous war against Burger King for some unknown reason my, 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 I discovered today a thread in which uh, people from very remote areas of Pakistan are uh, given uh, some foreign foods to eat to see what they make of them. And one of them was given some uh, some Burger King. And he and he was just quoted as saying they have they have called themselves king, not the people. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I thought I thought and you know what? It's very, very true. So thank you very much for listening. We have been Big Egg Podcasting Universe. Join us again in a couple of weeks' time for episode six. Fuck JK Rowling and her brigade of turfs and peace out. I think he was away in the Czech Republic and they were all away for the summer doing some sort of placement or whatever and they couldn't do it then so I decided I'm not going to do it then I'll do it with my friends so November come round we were graduating and um, I was sitting in the queue and um, I noticed the guy in front can't for the life of me remember his name now but he was very much the the what's the word I'm looking for the activist on campus so to speak but he was well known on the campus because he'd famously at the remember the London riots. Oh yeah. They uh, we fa- famously had we sent like three coaches down. It was like a, it was a literal cup final. We sent three coaches down to the London riots um, to protest outside the concert. Was it Conservative HQ? Wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the panned in the windows, not yeah. So we sent a couple of coaches in. I didn't go. I can't remember why, uh, but I, I didn't go. But he went, and he kn- he was the one that nicked a policeman's hat during the oh, riots. Wow. He nicked it off his head. A challenge in Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 4.
Yeah, exactly. He stole <laughs> he, he stole a policeman's hat and um, was uh, charged for it. And when I say charged, I mean um, he was don raided at six a.m. by the police who burst his door in and took him away. <laughs> they arrested him for failing failing to steal five policemen's helmets within two minutes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, he, he should have said he was pregnant. That's always a good a good excuse. But um, they took him away to his local um, detention centre. Guess where? Like, obviously, he lives in Glasgow. Guess where his local detention centre is? Oh God! Of course, it's Carlisle. Of course, it is. <laughs> um, and uh, he was um, he was detained in Carlisle, and then you're like, right, fine, you're free to go. And he's like, what? Uh, you're free to go. I'm in fucking Carlisle. I'm like, what? It says I. How did, how did I get home from Carlisle? And he had to go to Tesco and phone his dad and go, I've been raided by the police. They've taken me to a detention centre in Carlisle and then um, they've like just let me go and I can't get back so his dad had to come give me a lift. Anyway, basically this man became famous around for being the guy who nicked a policeman's hat and got raided by the police at dawn. And that, that is badass to be fair. Yeah, and but he was also the one um, before me in the list uh, for graduation, so he was one there before me, and he was sitting there, and um, uh, I looked at the list, and I was like, all right, oh, I know, I guess the guy who got Don raided, all right, cool, and then I spoke to my friend, he's like, oh, who's next to you in the thing, and I said, oh, it's this guy, he says, oh, oh, no, he's going to do his protest, I'm like, what? So oh, yeah, he's going he's gonna to do his protest, because the, basically, I think when he got Don raided and stuff like that, he got into trouble from the uni in the sense that I think it basically meant that he couldn't, because he's being investigated and stuff like that, he couldn't do his essays and he was late for his essays and they um, basically held it against him and were like, yeah, disciplined him and stuff like that. I can't remember, it was something like that. But basically it had a massive spat with, that went to the, the rector of the uni. Like, it went to like, head, like, I want to speak to your manager, I want to speak to the CEO levels of spat. And, um, Basically, this went on. This this was also quite famous. And then he uh, had planned to do a protest where he was going to punch the rector <laughs> at the, of the uni on stage as he received his certificate and then run away. And then I'd have to go up the prick going, all right, can I get my certificate? The guy's got a fucking broken nose or some shit. And it was going to be me that went up. And I had to spend... And it's obviously the big, you know, the... The, the big the conveyor belt of people all the way around and stuff like that. So I was sitting there for 10, 15 minutes going, I'm going to be in the news as the prick who just went up and got his certificate after all this. Like, this is going to be... Being given the, be, the WND punch. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm going to be the guy behind John Prescott. That's that's going to be <laughs> me. Like, man, I was like, fucking hell. And um, yeah, I, I was just like, God, I sit there for like 10, 15 minutes going, this is maybe like the best moment of my life, and I'm just sitting here like absolutely fucking freaking out because I'm I'm just going to be in the news after this fucking international incident, and then he shat it and didn't. He just oh. left, and I was like, "You fucking dick! You didn't like I didn't want you to do it, but I kind of wanted you to do it as well. Like you know, if you're going, you know, go big or go home, don't do it. Like absolute fucking like he melted, mate. He melted." He melted absolute fucking Lib Dem behaviour. <laughs> you know what? I'm not holding this against the lad because, you know, graduation, it's a, you know, it's easy to not want the assault charge and not to have the... Uh... There's a lot of witnesses, in fairness. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing you can't argue. It's almost <laughs> certainly being filmed. 
Imagine that on the graduation DVD and just like seen missing and then and then suddenly the rector's like holding his nose on with his right hand. <laughs> just under like a cotton wool mask. And just uh like but yeah, it's like, I suppose he's got the infamy already. He is the guy who got John raided and taken to detention in Carlisle. But one hand um, ice pack in the other. Yeah. And it's just yeah, but I'm I'm like, he should have fucking done it. Like I know it absolutely ruined my graduation, but fuck it. I'd have been, I'd have, actually, I'd have been in the news pushing myself with laughter as, as he did it. But, um, but yeah, uh, but no, I, I thought I'd regale you with that story. I, I, it's like 10 minutes, so it's definitely in the end. Oh, this is God, the yeah. first credit where, where did we, where did we, uh, we got to there, didn't we? We are a third of a page into my notes. Okay, wind it back and. <laughs>